people still that haven't come in yet. So I thought we would just welcome them with a little quiet time and then we'll do all the announcements, etc. So let's just sit quietly and wish yourself good morning in a more direct way. Enjoying the fact that you have this resource within you called awareness, noticing. Just notice that you're noticing. Conscious makes all the difference. And then just put your noticing in the same location as your body. Feel yourself sitting. Feel your body breathing without helping it along, just letting it breathe. Letting your body breath, your just body bring you to a sense of immediacy and let you know that the past has passed. future is just an idea. There's just this. Nothing more to handle than this unfolding present. So you might as well enjoy the only reality. Best way to enjoy it is an o- with open senses, clear awareness. The least amount of strain or tension that you can have. In other words, let go a little, and you'll have a little peace. Let go a lot. You'll have a lot of peace. Let be. That's easier. Feel your body just as it is. For once, don't try to figure anything out. Try to become anything. Just be as you are. There. Present. Embodied.
you for that. Lovely to see you. We welcome all of you. I'm very excited this morning. A little warm, but excited. Love this topic. I don't know how many of you were drawn by the topic or it's just that it's Saturday. Those of you who may not know me, I'm just uh, one of the Spirit Rock teachers, but I'm actually one of the original Spirit Rock teachers. I've been leading classes and retreats since 1985, believe it or not. And uh, I'm, I really am, the reason I'm telling you this is because I'm in, as enthusiastic today as I was the, the day I started. Of course, I was more afraid the day I started. But, um, and that was because I had the, uh, what we call the identity view of um, a rookie, of incompetent, of not enough, of insufficient, all these views about myself that, that uh, I had to work with all through the years. And so it's been that, uh, you could call it the crucible of working with identity that has, um, has had the effect of, I would say for me, of tenderizing my heart, uh, appreciating how, how much, um, I don't know why the word just came to my mind, how much torment <laughs> there can be uh, when we're caught up in um, views of ourselves and identities, and yet how essential identity is as part of our humanity. I will say from the beginning that the, the Buddha's teaching uh, strikes at the heart of, of who we imagine or take ourselves to be. It, he completely deconstructs the, the, um, the identity uh, so that we see that we, I'll just say it from the beginning, we don't really exist in the way that we think we do and we don't exist independently apart from everything and everyone else. And that's actually really good news, because um, the deepest sense that we, um, deepest longing is to connect and to love and to belong. And, and often it's just our way of viewing reality that keeps us from feeling that sense of connection. Of course, that the misperception of ourselves as connected to things has, uh, for each individual mind, has hardened into very strong uh, views and opinions, and it's turned into uh, racism, sexism, uh, fundamentalism. It's moved into all kinds of extremes that are just hardened versions of a, of in some way, a simple misperception that we can all, for ourselves, see through. That we can, we can begin to process of melting some of our very calcified views that keep us feeling separate, feeling um, separate in a way where it feels uncomfortable, apart from the flow of life, somehow not connected. Any of you ever feel disconnected? So I want to say from the beginning, we'll spend all day deconstructing our identities, but I want to say from the beginning that seeing through the self-illusion, the illusion of self, illusion of separate self, uh, does not mean that you are not an individual. An individual is implicit in this exploration. If it wasn't for your individuality, 
the one and only you that's expressing itself right here. You couldn't do this search. You couldn't do this deconstruction. It takes an individual to do that. And it may seem obvious to all of us that we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the individual uh, called Siddhartha Gautama, this person that was then called the Buddha, the awakened one. Clearly, utterly an individual who could really defend a, a teaching and defend a position and dialogue. It takes our individuality to do this whole work. So if you have the view that when you see through the self-illusion that you will disappear into the void and never to be seen or heard from again, this is delusion. Uh, Maybe the momentum, who knows, can't tell you what's going to happen after we die, maybe the momentum of 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 rebirth may may be um, weakened by by our realization into the selflessness of things. But... For our lifetime, all that seeing through the self-illusion does for us is frees us from this very deep contraction that makes us feel separate and isolated and uh, insufficient and all those things that we will elaborate on as the day goes on. So it's all good news to, um, to see through this illusion and you won't, uh, you'll still be here. You'll still be here. It takes you to figure this out. Or not to figure it out, but to realize it. Does that seem useful to know? Because that seems to be the fright that goes through people's minds. <gasps> there, will, there may be at times, and you can even experiment with this right now, there may be at times over the course of your practice of awakening where you don't have, you're not uh, occupying the same view of yourself, the same, the same thought of yourself, where you're just present, where the past has passed, the future hasn't happened, and even, even the present you see is just an idea. And here you are, without any reference to past, present, or future. Just present. Not an idea of yourself, but an immediate and direct experience. So you may, you may wonder right here, oh, I'll ask you the question, where is, what are you right now if you don't consult your memory? Where is your identity? Where is your suffering? Where is your problem? Your big issue? When you're just here. Is there any problem? you don't remind yourself of your problems. What do you experience after your last thought about yourself has ceased and before the next one comes? Anybody want to say?
hopefully we'll be conversing a little bit today. Uh, yeah, maybe we can have the mic. Anybody willing to say what you experience? Don't be bashful. I guess, uh, can you hear me? Oh, okay. Uh, I guess I found what you just described to be actually a little stressful. A little stressful. Because if you're leaving all the past stuff behind, aren't you also leaving, like, the memories of people you love and all of that? Yeah, for a moment, yes. You can always bring them back. But, but... What I'm, the reason I'm doing this is you may, you may, in moments, after having um, suspended our usual way of orienting ourselves, our past, like you said, and our future, and you're just here, usually, if, we're, if we can get used to it a little bit, you'll find that there's peace, there's quiet, there's ease, there's spaciousness. There's a fading away of our problems. And this is often the feeling that we are um, hoping for in our life. But our identities the thoughts about ourselves, our families, etc., our thoughts about ourselves, often construct a feeling in our minds, a, construct a, an idea, you could say, that we can't have this feeling until some other time. This feeling of peace when it's really waiting with open arms. Uh, So you don't have to travel very far to suspend or see through the, see the, the difference between your immediate felt experience of yourself and the idea of yourself, self view. The view is often waiting. View is often something's wrong. There's a problem to be solved. There's someone to remember. Something to do or to undo. But how's it feel just to, in the middle of it all, to have all your desires fulfilled? What happens to your identity? There is a, there's often a quiescence, a quieting. But did you disappear? Aren't you still here? We often miss this immediate sense of ourselves. This is not the idea of ourselves. This is a direct experience. So we learn in our practice to see the difference between the the presence that we are 
I hope this makes sense. The presence that we are, just very full, very here, very alive. And the historical view of ourselves, which is often fraught with unsatisfactoriness. And so we just try to see the difference between the immediate sense of ourselves and the historical. And you'll find that the, if you can get used to the immediate felt sense, you'll have a little more peace. And it, your nervous system will calm. If you stay a lot in the historical, your body will often go into fight, flight, or freeze to a state of suspended happiness because our identity often is, our identities are often bound up in problem solving. And is there any problem to be solved right now? And when there isn't, what do you experience? jumped right in, didn't we? <laughs> well, I guess I want you to know that where we're, where we're going is, is here. Where our, where our identities are often going, and sometimes very pleasurably, but sometimes not, our identities are often going to the past, which is just an imagine it's an imaginary past and it's wonderful that i can think about my near and dear ones but a thought of them is not them it's a thought and where where we where our identity usually goes is to the to the imagined future why do i say imagined future Because future doesn't exist except in our imagination. So when I live in the imagined past and imagined future, I'm often at a in a, I'm often I've often lost touch with the immediate felt sense of things. And interestingly enough, when I wake up to where I am, where I, I actually realize, oh, there's just this. And I, I realize the only way I can know that is if I um, have this body, this individual body. And if I have my attention in the same location as my body, as the Buddha talked about, why this is why I'm talking about this, not just for the fun of it. When a person puts their attention in the same location as their body, the body calms. The mind settles. There is the capacity then for a what he called a pleasant dwelling in this very life. 
And as I said before, there will often be a fading away of the view of ourselves as a problem. as something that needs to be solved, as a place where I need to go, something I need to do or undo to find relief. I find that relief, calm, peace, ease, wholeness, sufficiency, is my natural state when I'm not looking for it elsewhere. Does this make sense? This is why it's called it's called an open secret in some traditions that we can wander all over looking for relief when it's already resting right here. As uh, one Tibetan teacher said, don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who's already resting quietly at home in front of your own fireplace. Or the poet uh, Kabir, he said, oh, how I laugh when I hear that the fish in the water is thirsty. You don't understand that what's most alive lives inside your own house. And so you wander from one holy city to the next with a confused look. So as I started today, I talked about identity, ego, self, view, self, all those words that we use. The Buddha called the the view of self, he called it sakaya ditti, view of self. And he didn't really talk about um, self as an idea. Um, He didn't... He didn't use this self, that self. That was, that's much more of an English term. But what he did say about everything that we usually take to be self, that we take to be ourselves, he said everything that we usually take to be ourselves is marked, has a mark to it. And it's marked by not self. It's not self. Um, so this... Um, So as I said this morning, if you're human, you you have this sense of self, this sense of identity, what he called self-view. If you're born, you have self-view. And the problem isn't the fact that we have self-view. So don't try to get rid of it. The problem is this self-view is an idea. It's a view. 
It's a, point, it's a perspective. And as a view, it's not particularly reliable as a, a center, as a source of um, stability. Has you, have you noticed? Have you noticed that some places in your life you are a big shot, special, somebody. You can go next door and you may find that you're nobody. You know the old little trite poem, everybody wants to be somebody? That goes on. Everybody wants to become somebody, be somebody. Nobody wants to be nobody. But if that somebody could just be nobody, that nobody would really be somebody. (laughs) The sense of ourselves, somebody or nobody, it changes, does it not? According to who you're with, one day you're inflated and the greatest thing ever, somebody sees you and loves you, next next day your boss is saying, you know, you should be different than the way you are, or your partner or whatever, your friends. Um, so this sense of identity based on how we, are, how we experience ourselves with others, our situation, where we are, isn't it true that it's changing all the time? What I often have been talking about lately, because I have a 16-year-old daughter. She's a really, really good kid, but she's in the dreaded 16, where it's, you know, eye roll before smile. Uh, Ignore before smile. Um, Surly, you know, irritated, isolated. You know, lots of, I understand, very natural behavior. And here, and I, I borrow a phrase from one of my colleagues named Bonnie Durant. Uh, she calls herself when she's sitting in this position. She says, here I'm the sage on the stage. So that, that's the identity. I'm the guru. And so with that identity, there can be a, a certain kind of pride and so I'm here, I'm the sage on the stage. But then I go home. And my daughter could care less. <laughs> and so any dependence on being the sage on the stage is just crumbles. In the fa- it evaporates in the face of kind of this dismissal. Last year, I had to ask her to say good morning and when she came down for breakfast and she looked at me, she said, nobody does that anymore. <laughs> Needless to say, the, the view. and all through the years, you know, being in this role, it has a kind of, it can easily develop a kind of shroud. You think you're somebody. But every time I would unconsciously or unconsciously slip into my guru role with my wife, She'd shake her head and says, I don't want to 
be married to a guru. (laughs) So that identity based on our roles or how we are, it's completely, utterly unreliable. A source of insecurity. That just comes with the territory. So you can reflect among yourself, uh, reflect yourself. Where do you feel like somebody? And where do you feel like nobody? Both in terms of Buddha Dharma, in terms of wise understanding, both are imposters. They're just changing feelings according to conditions, according to circumstances. I'd love to hear. Want to say something? We wait for the microphone if you don't mind. Just yeah, yeah. Why not? Go ahead, and then we'll do some practice. Please. Oh, I just. I'm Sid. Hi, Sid. I've and it's just so delightful being here. I'm a little drunk on on this the just the awareness, and I had a question that came up, but I just also wanted to share that. Um, there's been a kind of a, well, there's been a 20 years, many awakenings and something happened about two weeks ago. And with that, it's a little different in that there's lots of there's laughter and a little yawning and shaking a little and stuff. little uh, involuntary movements. Yeah, yeah. And it's just, I mean, there's awareness and it's just moving through. But yeah. if it's a, dis- a distraction any time, I'm glad to go sit in the back, you know. If it's a, if it's a distraction? If it's in any way is a distraction, I'm glad I put myself in the back if that comes so far up so far so body. good but um here's here's the question that comes up for what you were talking about with identities and things a couple times in falling into this with with a, a partner and with um with when i'm dating a woman and my niece and nephew it all becomes impersonal and so it did become you know it became like the great the big love and in that in that place but them, there was no difference in this woman I was in love with and the person I met on the street because I was just, and I don't know, it only lasted for a couple of weeks when it's come, but I don't know if that moves through or, you know, that has been a concern that has come up at times. Yeah. Well, remember our concerns are never about what's actually happening. It's about what we anticipate will happen. So it's really a kind of fear. Uh, and I, 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 can completely resonate with the experience of having having a, a boundless sense of of love that's not that's not sentimental that's universal that that feels equal to everyone. But I don't know anyone who has had that experience and doesn't still have sentimental um, favorites. It still doesn't have family members, people that they have a certain kind of bonding with and uh, healthy attachment. So I don't think, I think the f- it would be a natural fear that you would lose healthy attachment, that you would lose that kind of bonding, but I've just never seen it, other than for, t- you know, temporarily. So it sounds more like you, it may be just important to nurse that as fear and worry and, and bring some loving kindness to that feeling. Um, but I think it's temporary. I would almost say I know it is, <laughs> as everything else is. 
But thanks for the question, and I'm happy for you to have an expanded sense of yourself. Yeah, that's, in the long run, very (laughs) user-friendly. Was there another hand, please? And then we're, we're just getting started, so I thought I'd... Howie, one thing I've grappled with is this distinction between past and present. Because um, so many times, uh, based on what's happening in the now, either with um, another person or just reading or just watching a movie, you you get an intrusive memory. Yes. And uh, oftentimes it's very painful. Yes. Sometimes I I, I cringe as as if I was stabbed in the gut. And that um, memory creates a, a new body. For that moment, yes. For that, for that moment. Yes. So, so the past is present. Yes. The only, way very, you can, very present. the only way you can ever experience past is present. There is only a present. So you had a memory. And that memory came, that memory arose in real time. And it came with memories, as many thoughts do, they come associated with strong, affective, you know, they're strong physical corollary and you feel this reverberation and like a, in, in this case it was a stab so you had the picture and the and the stabbing feeling those are happening in real time but there's no if you look behind you there is just no past back there there's just space and if you look ahead there's just no space up there either that's so that our mind constructs this thing the past back there and the future up there and a lot of the way that we construct our sense of identity is in this picture. But in fact, past is present, like you just said. Future, the only way we experience future is as fantasy, as worry, as, uh, as excitement uh, about what has not yet occurred. But that's happening all, it's all happening right here. So we don't really ever None of us has really ever left what we call the present. Or what you called just now, what you called now. We've never really left here. We only imagine that we leave here. We only imagine that the past is somewhere behind us or the future somewhere in front of us. I don't know how many of you have been with me before, but... I often tell the story of in graduate school, we studied a, an indigenous culture in South America or maybe in uh, West Africa. or so. I forgot where it was, but they had a completely different construction of time. For them, the past was in front because you can see it. The future... They, had, they put behind, because you can't see it. Uh, and both are conceptual, though. Uh, there really is only what we call a now. And even that is just another idea. Present, now, all those words. It's just... The, the question is how to respond to that intrusive... Oh memory, either good or bad? Ideally, you know, meditatively, we respond to it as, as 
by noticing it for what it is. It's a memory. And with it came a very strong feeling. And if that feeling is really unpleasant, the memory is really unpleasant, and we notice ourselves contracting, then it's just as, just as uh, the way that you would attend to a baby who's contracting or who's, who's upset is you would want to care for that baby. You'd want to regard it with kindness. You'd want to soothe. You'd want to bring a, what we, what really the, the, the main feature of mindfulness is kindness mixed with attention. Kind and interested and relaxed attention to that experience. And when it's especially strong, you want to make sure you want to go heavy with the kindness, the caring. Uh, when it's a little bit less uh, sticky, then it, just a general kind attention to recognize that as a changing condition, as a as a memory, ah, remembering, or or feeling really afraid, or feeling really sad, or feeling really hurt. Because most of us have had experiences that were, that were, um, at the time that we experienced them, they weren't. We were not able to uh, metabolize them, not able to accommodate them. So they keep intruding until we can uh, somehow be with those experiences in a non-contentious, non either not suppressing, not uh, repressing, or not acting out. We by just feeling. So that middle place. So the next time if something like that comes, uh, I think you I think you got the the picture. Nothing really to do or undo. It's just a it's a condition of the mind. So here so th- this is the crux of dealing with identity is we don't get rid of it we see that it's a changing condition. We see that we, instead of relating from that identity and then that story, that experience relating from it and getting completely bound up in it, we learn how to relate to it as a condition of our mind, as a condition of our, of our consciousness, the condition of our body if it, res- if it registers a, a felt sense. So... The most liberating shift in terms of identity is not to get rid of it. If you try to get rid of an identity, it just takes a new identity to get rid of the old one. And that it's a never-ending loop. So if you get rid of it, it means you're bothered by it. If you're bothered by it, it'll keep tormenting you. So you want to come to a way of relating to where you're not bothered by it where it, the response of your heart is kind and clear and with understanding. I saw a hand go up. So, um, what I notice in myself is when we talk a lot about identity in the mind that I sort of... Um, you start thinking I, a I, lot. I get so... You get up, disembodied. I get disembodied. Yes. So then it is difficult to feel the immediate sense of the present because I really feel that in my body as body sensations. Right. That's how, 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 I, how it works for me. So 
what I'm thinking about when I hear you talk is that this whole, you're talking about um, where the work is, is when we contact the self and the non-self. So it's sort of where we, in that threshold, noticing, oh, I'm getting ca caught up and then letting go. But it, it is, it's, it feels like it, it is somewhere in the, in the, uh, in the contact between the two of them that, uh, that the work is. Because if I go too much to non-self, no. I'm, 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 I'm disappearing. Yeah, I would forget the whole concept of non-self for our purposes today. Okay. The, I'll, I'll get into it more, but it sounds like it's already going into, it's getting a, a little more conceptual than, um, than might be helpful. And so if, if anything, when, you, when your mind starts going up, that becomes, put that to good use and let that be the immediate reminder to just feel where you're sitting. And just be aware of being, that you're aware and be aware of your body. Without your body, you wouldn't be aware. So just have them in the same location and, and notice then what happens. Can you feel that? Can you feel, and you may start with little th spots like feeling your hands on the microphone, feeling your rear on the, on the chair. Notice that you're seeing. Notice that you're hearing. Then what happens? How is that when you do that? Oh, that feels very settling. It feels very what? Settling. Settling. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like sounds like your tendency. I think it's really a good insight. Your tendency is to start thinking about self and not self instead of experiencing it. So this is really about. This is a direct practice. We're talking about it this morning just to create a a dialogue and to talk about the neighborhood that we're going to spend time today. But really, it's just about being together. Um, using some of these teachings as a, as a medium for that. So, fantastic. Your, your comments bring me back to something I really wanted to, uh, to do with us today because it's really at the heart of how the Buddha discovered the um, the liberating understanding about the nature of self. And how did he understand it? How did he come to understand it? And the first thing that he suggested to his... Well, I'll do it backwards. When he first started teaching, he went back to his ascetic friends that he'd been practicing with before and formed the the sangha, the community of people around him. And then he, he shared the, a very central, um, well, he, first he shared the Four Noble Truths, which is very much uh, about a, uh, which is one doorway to understanding the nature of identity. But in the most immediate sense, what he shared as a practice was the uh, practice of the cultivation of mindfulness. And he shared a, what later became a sutra, a teaching called the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And he implied that if you 
just cultivate mindfulness in these four domains, you will inevitably see through uh, the, um, the illusion of separate individuality, the illusion of self. And I, you, didn't see, you didn't hear me say, see through the illusion of individuality, see through the illusion of separate individuality. But you, but you need to start with the first foundation of mindfulness. This is the doorway. What is that first foundation of mindfulness? Anybody? Mindfulness in the body. Mindfulness directed to the body. When the, when the Buddha sat before his monastic or his renunciate friends, he said, there's one thing, O oh monks, that leads to, to um, calm, that leads to focus, that leads to a pleasant dwelling in this very life, that leads to the abandonment of the defilements, the things that actually keep us bound and confused and stressed, that leads to the sure heart's release, the release from that constricted sense of identity, What's the one thing? Mindfulness directed to the body. So that's what we're going to start with. And then I'll tell you a little story from the time of the Buddha that that talks about what happens when... um, what happens to our mind when we don't know how to inhabit our bodies. It all starts with how it is that we react to the presently arising experiences that we're having. A little sneak preview. can keep this as a, a gentle noticing throughout the day. That every experience that you have through the body or through the senses, every experience comes accompanied with a little feeling tone. You've heard this before. It's called Vedana. Every little experience, sight, sound, smells, taste, touch, and even the mental experiences, a mental sense, thoughts, they come with a little valence, a little feeling tone called pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant. And depending on how we react to those little feeling tones, we either go off in a world of, of our imagination and, and time and somebody and going someplace, or we are able to stay in the natural peace and calm that is the natural peace and calm of our nature. So the whole world of our imagination that where we construct, where our identity gets constructed and our different views of ourselves get created depends to some degree on 
these little feeling tones. In order to be able to sense the feeling tones of pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant, we have to have our attention in the same location as our body. This is where it all starts. And this is where it ends. As we already discovered this morning, after your last drama has passed, and before the next one comes, what do you experience? Please, we need the microphone. So for me, I understand what you're saying about the self, but I feel like there's also a notion of the others. So take your example of your daughter. She sees you as an annoying dad, for instance, and that creates... I'm sorry. That's how I interpreted your... Don't talk to me. Good morning thing. Um, So that's reality too, right? So... She sees you in a way that's right. She has that a view, you might she, not see yourself. She has in. a view of me, and I have a view of her. Exactly, that's so, right. And, and so, to me, in my in my instance, I'm not from this country, so people see me as somebody else from from a different country. But yes. I feel I feel just as a human being, right? Yes. But I can't avoid other people. No, you can't avoid other people's views of you. Yeah, and so we have to deal with it but we can either deal with it by operating from that from that feeling of being othered or notice the be able to notice oh i'm feeling othered right now and understanding it as just part of part of our our human condition part of our relational condition that's just comes with it but there's a, if you, but if you react from that place, you'll feel hurt, or you'll feel frustrated, or you'll say, "Don't you? You don't see me." Uh, and and that's not to minimize the the pain of being othered, which happened. You know, there's so many endemic, there's so much systemic bias and and racism in our culture. It's it's so built in that uh, we would never want to minimize the, the pain that comes from those projections, what you're describing. But each of us can develop, both honor that, uh, that, that sense of being seen in a certain way and honor the ways that we see ourselves that way, just because of our conditioning, but also not be limited by that. And that's the function of being able to relate to it instead of just from it. Instead of being the other, notice, oh, there's the othering. There's, the, there's that feeling of feeling other. And resting in that place that's not, that, that place of noticing that is not this, not either self or other. It's just aware. It's just love. So thank you for naming that. Oh, thanks. That's beautiful. I'm still hurt from being reminded of being annoying dad. Wait, wait for the microphone if you don't mind. Thank you. Sorry, I just wanted to, a short clarification. So if we're othering the 
I guess opposite of that is that we're supposed to remember that we're all part of the same thing. Is that the idea or the same? What's it's, the, what is it that you're, that we should instead be trying to welcome or remind ourselves of instead of othering? Yeah. It, not just as an intellectual thing, but that can be part of it. But yes, to remind, to realize most importantly that we, that, that we really don't exist independently apart from each other. There really is, and so there really is no independent self. That, it, and then consequently, there really is no other. That that other, that's a whole, that's a mental construction. It's conditioned. It's a conditioned view of self and other. That um, as a condition, it ends. It's not. It's not absolute. And so we want to be able to understand that that uh, that there really is no other but not just intellectually. We want to experience that sense of, of, of the fading away of that sense of, um, sense of self. And like right now, as, as I'm sitting here with you, after my last thought of, and the, of myself and before the next one, I'm just a field of awareness, you could say. I'm just being aware. And so there's not much of me and there's a lot of you. And so the, the sense of you and me just kind of melts away and there, we're, we're in this little bubble here. And if I stay here long enough, if there's a little less of me and then less, less other and then more just us or just you, then there's a natural feeling of curiosity and affection and, and uh, less self less self-referencing, um, less self-consciousness, less strain, less... There's just, wow. And, you know, the longer I talk to you, I don't want to be anywhere else. Because it's... And not because anything magical. It's just the fading away of, of the idea of self. And the fading away of the idea of other. And then there's this immediacy. Yeah. Does that make sense? So it's it's a direct experience as much as it is a cognitive one. Cognitive one is, yeah, we don't really exist apart from each other. And I'll talk more about that as a doorway to understanding not-self later. Please. Hello, Annalise. Lisa. Last one, and then if we've got to do some meditation. Otherwise, we'll, it'll just we'll be just in the realm of ideas all day. Um, my question is about when, what happened to me when I, let's say I listen for, like my job is to listen people problems. Yes. All day long. All day long. And so... I can relate. Yeah. And I have these moments where I feel like I'm all over the places. Like, I am scattered. There is no self. It's almost like well, I am exhausted and... So, the, yeah, but that, yeah. So, that, so, I don't think having a self would make any difference. It just sounds like you're tired and scattered. That there's tiredness and scatteredness. Yeah, how I can help myself. Mm. Well, my, my hunch, I think it's, it may sound very simplistic, but... Are you still talking to someone as that's happening? Yeah, I can get distracted. 
so you're still in the room with someone and you're feeling that, then I would say put 80% of your attention in your body. Notice what happens right now for all of you in here. When, as you listen right now, if you put 80% of your attention in your arms and your legs, your torso, your listening will be better. You'll feel more stable. You'll feel more grounded, so to speak. So generally, that sense of being scattered often is the sense of having become, and I don't want to just make it sound too glib or simple, but you've become disembodied. And there really is a, there is a, a, an increase, there is a process that the meditation fulfills of orienting ourselves, being able to, to have a feeling of embodiment and then still, still be very attentive to what's going on around you. In fact, more so because all of your senses are engaged in a way that they aren't when we're just in our um, rational mind and figuring things out. So I'd go... And it's not like you're going to find something magical, but there's something steadying. Because what is it, what's true about our body? It's present, always present. It, and it, so it immediately cuts through our mind that's constructing ourselves in time. In time, past, present, future. Just here. Just feel that. All through the day today, you might want to, to um, if you use this mantra throughout the day, keep my mind in my body, my body in my mind. Keep my mind in my body, my body in my mind. Or to use the words of the Venerable Ajahn Chah, the Thai Forest Master, Don't let your mind leave your body. And don't believe me, check it out for yourself, but I have so much confidence that you'll be able to listen better. So you won't lose. You'll only gain by having that sense of embodiment. Okay, without further ado, we can talk about the idea of being embodied all day and... It's like reading menus and not tasting the food. So let's let's taste the food. If you need to to um, just shake it a little bit while you're sitting, or if you need to stand, but don't leave the room. Let's let's practice together.
cramping leg. So I'd like to invite you to let your body rock from side to side, front to back, until you find a center point where Letting your body settle and letting your mind settle into your body can be done most effortlessly in a way that you can actually enjoy. Take some delight in the feeling of being embodied. And once you find that point of balance and ease, just Recognize that you're here and begin to just let your body go. Let it just settle into a gentle stillness. And I say gentle because it's not a stillness that's forced. It's a stillness that comes from letting go of strain and tension. Letting go of the desire to make something happen. Letting go of the doership. Just let yourself be. You're a human being. Let your body be like a block of ice that's been left out in the sun. Even though it has a sense of solidity, let it begin to melt into the openness of your practice. And to help to connect with life right where it connects with us, we can come a little bit closer to the felt experience of our sitting body. Feeling our rear on the cushion or chair. Just feeling that experience of contact long enough for the idea of rear and chair to melt away and just feel that sense of heaviness or pressure, hardness, just the elemental experience. Moving along to the hands. Feeling the hands touching whatever they're touching. Till it's no longer the idea of the hands, but the felt experience of tingling or pressure, vibration. Touch of the lips and the eyelids. Staying long enough till it just feels like sensation.
feeling the arms. Legs. the idea melts away and there's just that feeling of aliveness. Spreading out and feeling the whole body. Till the idea of the whole body gives way to the feeling of aliveness or vibration or pulsing. That living quality. Stillness. either stay with the feeling of the whole body sitting as your home base and also connect with little gentle micro movements that your body makes when it breathes begin to feel the gentle waves of the body as it breathes waves of the breath. You can narrow your focus a little more so that you, you connect with the beginning through the duration of the body's in-breath, beginning through the duration of the body's out-breath. Just letting yourself enjoy the body's experience of its own breathing. There's knowing and there's breathing. Knowing and there's sitting. No need for an identity in this process. It's not an egoic thing. It's just knowing and breathing. Knowing and sitting. body is the body. Just this moment, just this breath.
There may be gaps in awareness where you're not clearly comprehending what's happening and you may drift into fantasy and be lost in thought. And then there will be a moment when you realize you wake up to where you are. Just want to appreciate that moment of re-arising awareness, of knowing. In support of that knowing remaining anchored in real time, we connect again with our body, which is here. aware, just sensation, breathing, sitting, enjoying the experience of the body's breath, just the gentle stillness of the sitting body. Staying here as long as it lasts, remaining undistracted as long as it lasts. Being aware of the sitting body breathing body.
and you let yourself for a few minutes just be secluded in the body as the body, just aware, embodied. Breathing. Utter simplicity. Free of identity, hope, expectation, problem solving, just breath, body, knowing. No view of self, just life as it is. Just this breath, just this moment.
when you realize that you've been lost in thought. This is good news. This means awareness has re-arisen all by itself. Appreciate that moment of knowing, clear comprehension that you're now here. There's awareness and in support of remaining in real time, reality, present, now. Connect again with the body, which is here. Senses, perceptions. Gentle stillness. Feel the gentle movements of our body when they breathe. Just this moment, just this breath. Very curious. Just any comments or questions about the what you noticed in the practice? If you 
had any of the sense of just knowing and the experience of breath or body. And where was identity during that time? Please. Hi. Um, I had a trippy experience. Um, With every... um, Trying to focus on my breath and my breathing and my chest. My attention and my problem-solving identity or self kept emerging. (laughs) Great. Because I just got um, a new diagnosis of cancer in my chest area. So I had to Mm. switch to sound and uh, trying to pick up on the sensations of sound in the room and the birds and the vent and my neighbors so that I wouldn't get stuck in that so you found yourself being really pulled into totally uh, yeah naturally when you've been when you you have a new diagnosis of that's a that's a what we call it is a moment of contact the moment you have a thought of that, you know, and something like that, there's a moment of contact, and that kind of contact, this is, gets back to the pleasant, unpleasant, neither, it has unpleasant associations with it, needless to say. And ideally, in the course of our practice, we notice the unpleasantness of it. We don't, we don't get caught in the content, but of course... When something is new, as you just said, you have a new diagnosis, of course you're going to get caught in the content. But as we go along in the practice, that we feel that unpleasantness and we let ourselves feel the whole, we, we let ourselves feel how it's, how it's being felt through our body and the very same thing that... that that would usually send us to needing to figure something out and to either shift or shift our attention, the very same feeling felt, the unpleasantness and all the emotion with it, it actually settles us. But not now. I hope to get there. Yeah. I do. Yeah. I had one more um, experience to share. So a couple of days ago I had to get an MRI and it was pure sensation. It was not tough like now. I had no interpretation that went with the... Right. So It was like the, the physical... Yeah, so... It was the mind and the body yes. like for 30 or 40 minutes. Yes. It was like uh, air feeling the yes. like, ventilation on my face, yeah. like feeling my shoulders. I, and I had no time or room. It, like I imagined that was... It was all just body, yes, sound and everything, and it and that had a relatively pleasant association. Yeah, it was like yeah. much more neutral. Yeah. Than more neutral, this neutral, right or pleasant. Now. Exactly. Yeah, so I wanted to contrast. So, no, that. thank you so much for saying it. I'm so. I hope you're. Hope you're not. Uh, hope you can manage the upset of that. Just definition of birth. Leading cause of diagnoses. Everyone. So it's the where maybe this is not the right time for it, but where we 
compound the stress of the inevitable human experience is thinking it's only us. And uh, it doesn't necessarily make it any easier to for me to say that to you right now. We still, it, mostly we just need to care for our upset. But, um, but there all this teaching is about reducing our stress, reducing our suffering. And the, um, the way suffering gets compounded is the way that we relate to our experience. If we relate to it some way with, a, with an understanding that it's, that it's universal, that it's not just me, it often can soften the, the stress. But it's the personality view, the personalizing of our experience that um, that uh, makes us feel much more alone with our with our stress uh, anyway I, I so appreciate that you were paying attention and that you reminded me when you talked about there just being sensation and I was kind of pointing to that during the sitting of just knowing and sensation that's really mostly what's happening in real time and we may have the visiting of I of identity and our identity view, our identity with our body and what it means. But when we are simply experiencing, noticing and sensation, as they would talk about it in one of the Mahayana Buddhist sutras, it's called the Avatamsaka Sutta. It says, having no view of self, one is always peaceful. So if you are just experiencing sensation, or breath, and noticing no view of self. There's a certain kind of peacefulness to it. As soon as it becomes, oh, my breath, my body, my illness, my that's often when the stress ensues. Anybody else notice anything? Please. Here comes the, um, the mic right here. Second person. I had this realization during the meditation, how little I really go to my body. I'm in my head a lot. That's a great insight. And I re- for some reason, I really settled in my body. Beautiful. I felt everything. And because it felt so new to be so totally in my body, I just felt this overwhelming love for my body. Gorgeous. Yeah, Gorgeous. Thank was, you so much. It was amazing to how, for, to the realization how little I really feel my body. Thank you, and I think you speak for, for especially the modern culture. It's so disembodied and so much about obsessing about what's next. It's so much about time. It's so much about solve problem solving, rational mind, and often our senses just and the peace that it's caused by connecting to our body is lost. And that's why I talked about the open secret when we started. So this is not just a modern realization. This is from the time of the Buddha. The, the Buddha, there's a famous story that I, I like to share on most every retreat from a basket of teachings uh, called the Anguttara Nikaya, which is the numbered sutras of the Buddha. And they, they come in 
groups of four, of two, of three, of four, or five, and, and one of them, I think, in the early groups of the two or three. Um, maybe it's fours, I don't remember. But anyway, there's this story. It's, this is the group of fours, because this has got the, the four things at the heart of it. The story goes that there's this celestial being named Rohitasa. Have you, how many of you have heard of Rohitasa before? Not too many, okay. Well, there's this, in the Buddha's teaching, Buddha's cosmology, there's, and who knows whether it's literal or metaphor, there's, there's, it's considered that, that you can be born into different planes of existence. You can be in the earth plane, you could be in the realm, there's a realm called the realm of the hungry ghosts, the realm of the hungry ghosts, which I think is a metaphor for our culture. The, the, the beings are depicted with little mouths and huge stomachs, never satisfied. There's the realm of the barbarians. There's the realm of the, the animal realms where people are either eaten or be, eating or being eaten. So it's not so easy to practice. And there's a lot of suffering. Then there's the hell realms. And, and then there's the, as one, one has more refined qualities, more refined understanding, you start entering into celestial realms. And so this was a celestial realm where people are able to enjoy pleasure for long periods of time. And in this particular uh, realm, this deva or celestial being named Rohitasa had this special power that I guess came with that particular incarnation. He could walk extraordinary distances uh, very quickly. He could reach a a, an, a a target faster than a, somebody could shoot an arrow and could hit the target. And Rohitasa, though, realized that he he was, you know, no matter what plane of existence you're born into, there's still the cycle of life, and you go through stuff. And that's the definition of birth. You just have, you have things that are hard to bear and loss and strain and issues. And he wanted to reach the end of the world. He wanted to go to the end. He thought that he could get off of this whole wheel of strain by walking super fast. <laughs> it's kind of deluded, of course. But he... he he decided he was going to walk to the end of the world and end of the cosmos, so to speak. And he died after a hundred years of trying. And then he was reborn again because he was sincere and he happened to have the good fortune of being born at the time of the Buddha, the historical Buddha that we all know about. And he went to the Buddha and said, you know, in such and such a life, I was Rohitasa, the, the, uh, Deva and I, I tried to walk to the end of the world and I died and and he asked the Lord Buddha a question. He says, "Is it possible to um, to reach the end of the world by going?" And the Buddha said, "No." <laughs> but then the Buddha said something that it's really important for our practice. He says, "Only those who reach the end of the world." become liberated. The end of meing and mying, the end of all this endless becoming, going, 
to the end, trying to get to the end of the problem, the the um, composite, you know, whatever it is we're doing. This obsession with what's next, I call it. It says, but only those who get to the end of that become liberated. But then the Buddha said something that's very relevant to what we, what you just said about being in your body. He said, within this fathom-long body, with its senses and perceptions, lies the world. Within this fathom-long body, with its senses and perception, lies the cause of the world. What, it's what happens here that sends us on our way. Now remember earlier in the day I said when we're sent on our way to the, try to reach the end, try to solve problems, we don't really go anywhere, do we? We don't ever really leave present moment. We only think of ourselves as having come from the past, passing through here on our way to the future. But really, life is just an unfolding present. Does this make sense? It's just here. Past is here, getting back to our friend over here. Future is here, fantasy, hope, expectation, worry. It's all here. So the Buddha is saying, within this fathom-long body lies the world. Lies the cause of the world. And the cause, what's the cause of the world? The cause of the world is the way we react to feeling our experience here. If it's pleasant, we like it. We like it, we want more of it. We want more of it, we, it sends us in a, in a search for, have you ever searched for the weekend while, during work? You ever search for the end of a project and hold your breath while you're getting it finished? I think the last time I was here, I'm having a deja vu, it was just last month. I talked about being a, in my 20s and I had the amazing good fortune which I think I took for granted of of buying a, a home and that was uh, for some reason I always want to save what how much I paid for it because it's so it's such a funny thing in today's it was $27,000 or something <laughs> which you know at that time was a huge amount of money for me but by today's terms it's it's crazy. But anyway, I, I, I bought this little house and it was a super fixer-upper and, and I started into the process of, of home improvement. And I noticed the longer I got involved in this home improvement, the more stressed out I got. And I just was under the absolute certainty that I had to finish this project in order to feel any sense of relief. Any of you ever feel that? But then I had a dawning of uh, an insight. This came to me while I was in the middle of it. I realized, oh, home improvement is endless. There is no end to this. And, uh, and of course, the, all the ducks lined up and I realized, oh, self-improvement is just like that. It's endless. 
and something in me relaxed. And I, you know, there's that sense of not waiting for the end to have relief. Why not have relief now and go about doing the project relieved instead of holding my breath until it's over? So because of that, the tendency of the mind to associate my happiness with the project ending, or in meditation it's often the associating happiness with the bell ringing. But instead of that, we... We notice, oh, I'm waiting for the end of the project. So within this fathom-long body, with its sense and perceptions, is the cause of the world. I'm creating this this world that I'm spinning out and waiting for it, creating this whole thing of time. And then the Buddha said, within this fathom-long body, with its sense and perception, lies the end of the world. So if we just, if we actually stay where we are, we can find the peace that we are looking for. It's not other. It's not at the end of the project. It's as we go. And then he said, that within this fathom long body, with its senses and perceptions, lies the path leading to the end of the world. So where is the world now? That world that we keep spinning out. We associate our happiness with where is it when we're simply in our bodies having no view of self one is always peaceful so easy to overlook this sense of some settling that happens when our mind is in our body and of course if you were to sustain this through the day you would spend a lot of time dealing with unpleasant sensations. <laughs> it's not, it, there's a little bit of beginner's luck where there's something very harmonizing and settling. But because we are so in the habit of being disembodied, we've left our bodies unattended to, unloved in a way. Left the body uh, as a, almost like an enemy because we didn't know how to accommodate the unpleasant. Slowly, slowly, we learn how to make space for the unpleasant, like you said. Make a little space for it, and even the unpleasant becomes a cause of peace. And that's the heart of the Buddha's teaching, that the cure for pain is is being able to feel it and know that it's a changing condition and that it's not so personal. We'll spend a lot of time on that this afternoon. Anybody else before we do a walking practice? Going to do a little 15-minute walking period. Please, a microphone over here, please. I think an aspect of the self for some people, probably for a lot of people, is life purpose and um, sort of out of the momentary feeling. Direct experience of oneself. And, uh-huh. um, it's probably more of a, maybe a soulful yeah. uh, search. Yeah. Um, so 
obviously in in that search there's can be conflict right do i go left or right and uh, say activism i mean obviously activism is well said a, a process of confronting forces much greater than i am and mm. that i don't know about so um i in in um following this morning of going into my body and uh my breath um i had a sense well well what about my soul so i just wanted to bring that up because i think for some people that's a, a, an important part of being human yes my hunch is not, I don't want to be too glib about this, but my hunch is if we were able to really stay embodied, real sensitive to our, our, our immediate sensations, etc., we will, and clear, open, empty of an idea of myself, which is what happens when you're aware like I, I can't be aware of you and have and be caught up in an idea of myself. I'm just aware, so it's not historical. If I'm able to, if I'm able to nurture and cultivate that non-historical sense of aware presence, that allows the the more resonant voices to be heard, the heart, the, incl- the, the wholesome inclinations, the, the cares, the, the passions, those things that are really hard to hear when we're trying to figure it out, when we're trying to figure out our soul's purpose. And I'm not trying to minimize that because that's a, it's a, a natural longing. But I, but I don't think the longing for our soul's purpose can ever be figured out. It has to be lived into. It has to be felt. And so it's literally the opposite of our usual, our usual way, our usual method of discovery. Our usual method of discovery is, is problem solving, is rational mind. And it generally leaves in its wake much more anxiety and uncertainty. And there's something about having the full having the full use of all of our senses and intuition that lets us uh, live into our so-called purpose. Uh, and I think we've been uh, one because our um, our uh, rational mind tends to pr- try to predict how we will feel. I don't know if you've read all the studies, but or a lot of the studies. They often highlight them in, in in newspapers and publications, and and because so much of our measuring of what to do and what not to do tends to be uh, predictive, the studies find that we are terrible at predicting how we will feel. And that we never feel as badly as we thought when when we either you know, have done a lot of studies on passing and failing exams and um, but I think it's the same process of of thinking about things uh, without the full sense of aware presence. Well, I can see that uh, the practice of aware presence 
can be a real antidote to the process of life purpose or activism. Uh, and also an aid, an aid to life purpose and activism. I think we just, we have to be, one has to be actually really present to feel a caring. And it's out of caring that our, that our activism flows. If it just flows out of an idea of what's right and what's wrong, it doesn't have. It often gets into attachment. It gets into identity with views and opinions, and then we end up being uh, it, our activism ends up being very contentious, and it gets imbued with a lot of ill will, and then it we became we become as many meditators here at Spirit Rock have attested to. We end up being burned out activists uh, because our hearts have hardened. So that really important to have that um, one that environment of kindness, but two embodiment, all of our senses engaged. It's so easy to talk about. It's a, it's a different thing to live into it. <clears throat> one more, and then we then we will do a short walk, and then one more sit, and then lunch. Can you handle a, another walk and sit? Um, a few weeks back, I realized that after a lot of searching outside and reading and studying, that what I was seeking was not going to happen up here, and that it was going to happen in a different place of knowing. Yes. Well yeah. said. Thank you. <laughs> I didn't say it. it <laughs> no, I'm happy for you, you know. to realize that. Yeah. This is the first time I've attended a workshop after that. And so I'm sitting here with a question of if I'm not coming from up here right now, and that's not where I'm trying to learn from, and I'm sitting in presence, I hear that's what you're talking about is a sense of awareness, but there's this deep desire to just go inward and that everything is in there already. And I'm just finding it interesting. So where does in and out where does in stop and out begin? Um, it's more of a state of stillness, I guess, okay. rather than in. Okay. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. That's, it was, it, it's coming as a kind of question of how to, how to be once you're in that state, if there's any it can lead to not really engaging as much. Has, has it ever? Or is that your fear? See, you're, uh, you're talking about inward as, an, as isolated. But then you said inward as stillness. Stillness has no location. It's not isolated, nor is it, nor is it, it it's wherever you are. So don't try not to associate inward with needing to withdraw. Mm-hmm. It's if we use the word withdraw, but we really don't go anywhere. We just we shift our we shift our attention to to as you just said to stillness, and that you can you can walk around your whole life that way, and you and there won't be any kind of nobody has to know it either. 
and you're amidst, you're right in the middle of the marketplace. And you're still. That's the happiness of the Buddha. A, a well-being that doesn't depend on circumstances. Now, having said that, usually people who realize that are people who have withdrawn and spent a little time in seclusion. But for in the meantime, though, those conditions may not be available to you in your life, but you could still have stillness. Because why can you have stillness? Stillness of mind? Because it's your natural state. Awareness, being aware is also being still. Awareness is still. What you may be aware of is not so still. It's a crazy world. Sound, sight, smells, taste, everything. But the awareness that knows it, just that moment of knowing is still. You, you're still, everything will be known. And you could even say life purpose fulfilled. Because <laughs> you've already arrived at what you're looking for. Stop looking. <laughs> Stop looking. You know, the, the paradox is only those who, who look tend to find it though. So <laughs> Only those who want to discover their purpose tend to realize it. Anyway, that's too many words. So I'd like you to, just as a way of aerating a little bit, I'd like you to, um, how many of you have not done walking meditation before? Okay, enough of you. So here, one of the ways that we practice is we, and, and this gets back to the portability of being aware and being quiet, is that we, we see that uh, that we can carry that on in whatever we're doing. And so we, our formal practice here is sitting, but we also have a formal practice of maintaining that same aware presence as we, as we walk and we feel our steps. And we let our steps and our legs call us here. And we just keep coming into that simple experience of walking. And we don't have to be busy thinking of our of our identities and our roles and our problems that need to be solved. We just walk and know we're walking and know that the, the, the cessation, the fading of, of uh, the torments of identity are just a simple step away. It's just stepping. And then from that perspective of, of just being simple, feeling your steps, when your mind wanders, come back to your steps. In that experience of being simple, then you can notice, as part of your noticing, you can notice when your, um, your identity starts popping up. And one of the reason I'm telling you this now is because when you walk around other people, and what we do is we walk to and fro, back and forth, Reminder that we're not going anywhere. We're just meant to arrive in each step. But one of the things you'll notice when you walk around other people is there may be the arising of what we call self-consciousness. And that's, what, that's just another felt experience of self-view, view of myself. And it's, it's an opportunity for us to 
relate to it, to notice it, as opposed to relate from it. We go, oh, we can see, oh, this is self-consciousness. Or you may notice, as one of my friends used to say, the the self-consciousness can take a few different forms. uh, And it can be... um, We can either feel less than. This is very much at the heart of, of... the Buddha's teaching on identity is it's often bound up in comparisons. And it's called, the Buddha called it mana or conceit, the conceit I am. Otherwise, it's called, mana is otherwise known as the comparing mind. And the comparing mind comes in three forms. Atimana, which is the superiority of you. That's the feeling when you're walking and you all of a sudden feel, I'm a great meditator. I'm better than. And then there's the mana, which is the equality view. I'm and it's still measuring, though, I'm equal to. And then there's the amana, which is the inferiority view. Feel less than, feel uns- diminished in some way. What we do in our practice is we just notice that. We don't land in any one of those views. We don't water it and build a monument to our inflation or our equality or our deflation. We just notice it as a habit of mind. It's just self-view. It's comparing mind. So it's it, the walking, because it's so neutral, gives us, an, and especially walking around others, gives us a chance to see that in action. So 15 minutes of, of enjoying the comparing mind, if it comes, if it doesn't, then let it just be the steps. And in about uh, 12 minutes or so, in, In about 15 minutes, you'll hear the gong and we'll come back and sit. Okay, and if anybody wants to check in with me one-on-one or doesn't feel comfortable to speak in front of the whole group, please come up. So to and fro, back and forth. Feel free to get some fresh air. Walk at a pace that you can stay connected to your body.
just before we sit, I thought I would just talk a little bit more about how our body relates to identity, since that's a general topic for today. I think it's a universal experience, and I think the Buddha was highlighting this in his teaching, that our number one source of identity or identity view is the view, I am the body, that the body is me. That's the, that's the personality view, the identity view that is most pervasive among human beings. And because on the conventional experience of ourselves, this is my body, and then you have your body. So it seems like I am the body. But then, when we look closer, as the, as the Buddha did, to the nature of the body, it, that sense of it being myself uh, begins to break down a little bit. And I'll say a few, few uh, ways that that happens if we just look carefully enough. One, I'll talk about more philosophically, something that we can just experience in general. If this is my body, what happens when my body experiences illness? Can I, can my body, can I avoid having my body become ill? So if I cannot control my body's illness, the illness of my body is not mine. It's out of my control. And maybe most of you have read most people read a lot about Dharma, Buddha Dharma teachings before they practice, but many people practice and then they read. But a very classic story in the, in the teachings is the story of the life of the Buddha. When he was 29 years old and was very protected and was frolicking and the myriad pleasures that human beings could have, he, fa- he experienced a high degree of restlessness and agitation. It didn't satisfy him to just stay occupied with pleasurable experiences. It made him really, it just left in its wake continual feeling of dissatisfaction. And he wasn't any happier having lots of pleasure than from day one to, to 29 years. It didn't make him happy, in other words. But then what really began to cause him to, uh, to search uh, for a, a more reliable happiness, one was dissatisfaction, so that dissatisfaction, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, word that's often loosely translated as suffering, but really just unsatisfactoriness, the unreliability of things, that became a springboard 
be really open to that. I just, my dad wants me to go into the family business. This is basically what he said. Just have more stuff, more, be much more of a landowner and a, a royal. He says, but for me, the way I feel right now after this level of dissatisfaction, it would be like sitting on a bed of coals if there's no peace in my heart. None of it's made me peaceful. And what really turned him toward that, that sincere longing for something reliable was he saw someone of similar age, somebody 29, who was extremely ill. And he realized, and it may seem crazy that a 29-year-old wouldn't realize this already, he says, this could happen to me. And it said at that moment that his identity with health, his what he called pride in health or enchantment with health, enchantment, pride, identity. What we get enchanted with, we get identified with. It becomes me. His enchantment, identity, his pride in health evaporated. Just said, there's no... There's no rest in, in health. Doesn't mean you don't try to make yourself as healthy as possible. Of course you would. But it's not reliable. Not a reliable source of identity. Didn't stop there. He, and that this, this person who was ill of similar age, he was considered the first of the heavenly messengers, those messengers of life that wake us up. The second so-called heavenly messenger was a, um, uh, someone who was extremely old. And when he opened to that, and we, don't, we tend not to open to that because we, we live in a kind of cult of, and maybe that's too strong a word, but a cult a culture of youth. But it said in that moment that he saw this extremely old person, it said that his enchantment with youth, his, in, his pride in youth evaporated. His identity with being young. And boy, that's, that one dies hard in, the, in this culture. And the amount, the lengths that people go to look young, it's... It's shocking. Just think of all that was, uh, all that money was devoted to feeding people. Who wouldn't have a hungry mouth in the world? And it goes nowhere. It's just a loop. This pride in youth leads nowhere. It does not lead to. Maybe it leads to a few moments of pleasure when you see a, a line disappear or, whatever, or a, a, the hair color change, but it, it leaves in its wake the need to keep purging of anything <laughs> that has a sign of aging. And then, of course, the, the, the clincher was that the, the third heavenly messenger was the, the person who was ill, the old person, and the third heavenly messenger. This all relates to our bodies. Our bodies. He saw a corpse. And we managed to hide our corpses away pretty well in this culture. 
You know, in, in India, they parade them in the streets and they burn them in front of everyone. And it's, there's a normalizing of this. So the pride in life is not as strong. The, en- the enchantment with life, appreciation of life, of course, the poignancy of life, but the clinging to it is uh, a little, there's, it's much more, the uh, cycles of life and death are much more normalized, natural. So it's said that, that the pride in life just evaporated at that moment. But it left him with that question of, okay, if I'm going to get sick, get old, die, well, where do I find relief? clearly can't find it in this fathom-long body. Uh, And that's the other thing, is when you study this body, that's partly why within this fathom-long body lies the end of all the seeking, because you see it for what it is. You stop running from our body as it gets sick and ages and dies, and we open to it as just part of the cycle of life. Instead of it being the cause of so much upset, it becomes our springboard to peace. Easy to talk about. It seems kind of built into our DNA to a kind of attachment to life of some sort. But I, the more we meet that with wisdom, the more we, we meet our condition with some understanding. And so there's less stress. So identity with body is our, our sense of suffering and freedom is very much bound up in identity with the body. I like to, to highlight a little bit more. This is something that we, that we not only discover uh, philosophically if we just, or just why, open our eyes to the macro situation that all seven billion of us will be replaced in a hundred years. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty obvious. But it's something we also discover microscopically, this selflessness of the body, the out-of-controlness, the unreliability of the body as myself. What we notice meditatively when we study the body, use it as our, our object of attention. We won't have time to really study it in a deep way today. This is just more the introduction to identity, view, and how much we get identified with our body. But if you were to spend a significant amount of time paying attention to what we call the body, remember the body is a word. Body implies a thing. True? But when we start to feel what we call the body, it stops feeling as much of a thing. In fact, the closer you get to the feeling of the body, you start to experience it as a sea of changing conditions, vibrating, pulsing, searing, squeezing, uh, aching, stabbing, itching, tingling, a whole range, cool, hot, all happening, coming and going all by itself. And pain come, pain, pain coming and going, pleasure coming and going, rapture, joy, you know, just pleasurable feelings, unpleasant, all coming and going, changing all by themselves, 
selflessly, you start to see that this process of mind and body, the process of body in this case, is a changing condition and it's happening all by itself. And that you cannot, there's no place in the body that stays the same all the time. So which part would be my body? Where's the me? Where's the mine in the body? So then science comes in. And maybe you've been with me before. I love to share this little factoid. It puts a little more perspective on the selflessness of the body. So this is about the human body. Humans spend a third of their lives sleeping. Every person has a unique tongue print. Interesting factoid. There is enough iron in the human body to make one small nail. A cough releases an explosive charge of air that moves up to 60 miles per hour. Sneezes can travel over 100 miles per hour. It takes 17 muscles to smile, 43 to frown. It takes approximately 200,000 frowns to create one permanent brow line. (laughs) Most people blink about 25 times per minute, about 20,000 times a day. The average person speaks about 31,500 words per day. Every breath we inhale billions of atoms that end up as heart cells, kidney cells, brain cells, etc. Average adult is made up of 100 trillion cells. If you unwound and joined the DNA from the genes of the cells, it would fit into an ice cube. The string would stretch 80 billion miles. That's from the earth to the sun and back 400 times. Body gives birth to 100 billion red cells every day. Every square inch of the body is populated by 32 million bacteria that are born and die in it. Humans shed 600,000 particles of skin every hour, about 1.5 pounds per year. By age 70, an average person will lose 105 pounds of skin. Most dust particles in your home are made from dead skin. The body makes new stomach lining every five days. Body makes a new liver every six weeks. Body replaces a new head hair every two to five years. Body replaces new eyebrows every three to five months. Body grows new skin once a month. Body replaces a new skeleton every seven years. 50,000 cells in your body will die and be replaced with new cells all while you listen to this sentence. sentence. Radioactive isotope studies show that body replaces 98% of its atoms in less than one year. So, at any given moment, parts of the body are appearing and disappearing. So if you think you are your physical body, which body are you talking about? So we we find through meditative observation what the scientists find through, through deconstructing what we take to be our body, made up of all of these elements that are not so me, not so mine.
They're happening all by themselves. Yet from, the, from a more conventional perspective, what happens to your body is not the same as what happens to my body. So we never deny our individual bodies, but we see that even this individual body is made up. This is the other part that's, that, that's much more of a reflection, but then we can sense it in time. This body that I call myself, when does it begin? Does it, does it not exist connected to uh, my parents? And does not my body, this body that I call myself, does it not also exist dependent on earth, air, fire, water? So it's made up of all these non-personal elements. Parents, and then my parents, of course, depend on culture, their family. And you could say that if you wanted to find the origin of this body, just like the the common, this is a very um, popular question, if you want to find out um, the the ingredients of of an apple pie, you'd have to go back to the Big Bang. If you want to find how an apple pie is made, it's made up of all of these non-personal things that brought apples to be. It's the same for each of us. So on a conventional, from a conventional point of view, this is my body and I have to care for it. And there is a sense of agency. But if you look more closely, which part is mine? Where is the me? Where is the mine in it? And is it not made up of all of these non-personal elements? This afternoon we'll get more into the non-personal, um, non-personal parts of our um, cultural, racial, um, ethnic, religious, political, all those kinds of identities where we tend to get very bound up. But just one last little piece about identity with the body. Are you still with me? A very central insight in the Buddha's teaching on identity was that what we take to be me and mine I, me, mine. This sense of agency, this sense of I, and especially because we're talking about the body, I am the body, it is based on, um, there's actually five things that happen that we mistakenly take to be ourself in any moment. And one of them was that feeling tone that I talked about before. But before the feeling tone, there's materiality, there's contact, there's, there's contact with the, that depends on earth, air, fire, water. So there's the senses. And when there's contact, there's feeling that gets created. So if I hear something, smell something, feel something, taste something, think about something, there's, there's a moment of contact and feeling that comes immediately. 
Those things just happen all by themselves selflessly. Like, conventionally speaking, we'd say, I heard that gong. That's our conventional point of view. But from a more meditative point of view, more ultimate point of view, that was contact, feeling, perception. Perception is basically what that is. It's a gong. All that happened all by itself. And so there's contact, there's feeling, there's perception, there's mental formations. I may have some kind of thought or reaction to it. There may be mindfulness of it or not. That's mental formation. And then there's consciousness. And that consciousness arose and, and fades. Consciousness is also not myself. It's just consciousness. And it comes and goes with each thing. And the same consciousness that's, that feels the sensation is not necessarily the same consciousness that heard that. But our, because of the proximity of our usual observation at a distance, more gross perspective, more conventional perspective, that seems like me, that I'm having an experience of the gong ringing. And we won't ever, we won't, we won't give up that. That's a conventional point of view. But if you look more carefully, there's just a sound being known in consciousness. Boom. And the consciousness and the sound and the perception and everything arising and fading all by itself. Selfless. That may not be meaningful to you, but remember, every time we see through, this gets back to earlier or earlier today, every time we see through the illusion of our separate individuality, see the non-self element of ourselves, we also see through the illusion of other. It melts away a little bit of what keeps us bound in a feeling of separateness. Not in the conventional level of separateness. It takes the conventional level of separateness for me to realize any of this. But if I have an experience that that go that ex, if I experience things beyond that usual conventional point of view of separateness, I start to feel inevitably a greater kinship with everything and everyone. And it's out of that. That, le- that thinning of the veil of separateness that comes that, that, um, that caring, that loving heart. That activism, if it if it's, uh, expresses itself that way. It tends to, this tends to lead more toward more of an altruistic impulse. But of course, that doesn't have to look a particular way. It doesn't mean you have to join a movement. It means that you just naturally feel sensitive to the impact of your thoughts and words and deeds. Uh, That you're not just here alone in a little vacuum. You can see how one person can cause such a ripple. I won't mention names. Anyway, so... All of this sense, this sense of, of separate individuality is based on the proximity of observation. So from a distance, we look like a solid thing having a lot of, a solid person having all this experience. 
But when we look a little closer, we have contact, feeling, perception, mental formation, and consciousness flashing on and off. It's called the five aggregates, the five heaps. And especially with, um, with body, because of the proximity of observation, our usual look, it seems solid. But we study it a little closer, our, our perception changes. And we see that it's just changing conditions. This may not feel useful right now, but it's part of the, it's part of the process of learning how to be with these, this, this body experience without so much identification without so much clinging. And it's, it is the clinging to our body, it's identification with the body that is probably the number one cause of stress. Just notice when you age, when you get ill, and when, you, when you're dying, or when those who are near and dear to you die. There's a... We're not always easy with it. So let's have a little more sitting with our body. I won't keep you too long since we... Well, it seems like lunchtime. Just punctuate this with a a slightly tongue-in-cheek poem from Pablo Neruda. What we know comes to so little. What we presume is so much. What we learn so laborious. We can only ask questions and die. Better save all our pride for the city of the dead and the day of the carrion. There, when the wind shifts through the hollows of your skull, it will show you all manner of enigmatical things, whispering truths in the void where your ears used to be. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) So sweet. So finding where we find, where, finding where we experience what we call our body. Just for a moment, remove the word my body and change it momentarily to the body. Mindfulness is directed to the body. The body is calmed. Mind is calmed. Let the body be calm. Be as it is. Let's settle into a gentle stillness. 
Let it be met with kindness and appreciation. Gentleness. This fathom long body with its senses and perceptions. It's through this body that the world is known. Notice how it breathes selflessly all by itself and let it breathe itself. And there will be the noticing that some breaths are short, some are long, some are rough, some are smooth, some are deep, some are shallow. Make no effort to alter the breath. It is not an egoic experience. It's just a bodily experience. Breathe itself. And if the controlling mind comes in, you'll see there's identity. Just enjoy that too. The directing mind comes in, notice that's identity, the director. Otherwise, just let the body breathe and be known just as it is, just this moment, just this breath. even accompany the breath with a soft mental label, body breathing in, body breathing out. Body rising, body falling, body expanding, body contracting. 95% of the sensitivity to the feeling of the body breathing, 5% this little whisper Acknowledging the process that's happening all by itself. Just this moment, just this breath. Body is not myself.
with the mind and the body, body and the mind.
as if you didn't know it's lunchtime. Really enjoy being with you this morning. I think we'll just take 45 minutes for lunch today. Is that enough for all of you? Okay. Uh, Ideally, it's a very rare opportunity to be with ourselves very intimately. So the recommendation is that you keep what we call noble silence. But um, since it may not have been, you may not have known that we would do that, uh, feel free if you do desire to talk to somebody who you're with. Please do it in a way where it doesn't interrupt someone else's solitude. A very interesting thing to pay attention to during lunch, if you are talking or not talking, is the tendency to become identified with our roles, our gender, with all these many different identities, especially for people who may have come together. They have identity of friend or family, and you know, so much, I know notice in families with. You know, mother daughters, and uh, like my my da- my wife is definitely challenged by my sixteen year old daughter right now. But when she steps out of the identity of mother for a moment and just sees my daughter as a sixteen year old, it's very different. But when it's my daughter and I'm the mom, it's a whole different experience. And so, just to see that these identities are negotiable, and that we're we can meet each other on many different in many different dimensions. Some that will are fraught with more uh, stress, and others that are more open. So play with that, in, in, if you have a conversation. But I also recommend that you take advantage of the rare time to to have solitude and enjoy the beautiful grounds here. And in forty seven minutes, we'll we'll be back sitting together and lots more about uh, again working with the comparing mind, working with the with what we call the worldly winds, that just all the elements of change in our life and how it relates to identity, relating to the the um, the view of ourself as uh, as insecure, or, um, insufficient. I know none of you've ever felt that. But anyway, please be mindful when you eat. Just eat, uh, feed the body. And uh, see how your relationship to food, relationship to body, can be understood from a more meditative perspective during lunch. So, enjoy.
congratulations for deciding to continue with the afternoon. <clears throat> I think that I'm, I think my, my slightly humorous remark is based on a not so hidden truth that we tend to associate a um, a pleasing sense of a sense of ourselves most uh, positively with something that we experience as pleasant, <clears throat> and there is a certain point in the day as we sit with our body and sit with our mind and have attention, more continuity of attention that that sometimes there may feel we may feel a little weariness and often the first insights in a meditation period will be I like to call it bad news because you realize your body's tired or you're, you feel a little restless uh, or your mind is scattered and so many kinds of unpleasant feelings can come and and if you're identity is bound up in pleasant feelings, then when the unpleasant ones say, rather roll up my mat and go home. And so they're often in the middle of the day, there's a a little ideation about planning escape. So this actually describes a little bit, this doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens because of these little moments of pleasant, unpleasant, neither pleasant or unpleasant, which is the springboard to the whole creation of identity. Something, for example, that I'll use the pleasant this side. Something pleasant triggers um, triggers a, a reaction. I, I like that feeling of pleasure. Of course, when you have a pleasurable experience, don't, isn't it true that you want it to last and last and last? But it is in the nature of experience that it comes and it goes. Everything that arises, this is Buddhist, Buddhism 101 or life 101. Whatever arises, passes away. Whatever has the nature to arise, whatever conditions present themselves, also have the nature to pass away. And in the Buddha's teaching, to be in harmony with change, to be in harmony with impermanence, brings relief. So we have, but we have this pleasant feeling that comes. All of a sudden our mind goes into a little quiet, a little cessation of stress, and it produces a pleasant feeling. And then that pleasant feeling is followed by liking. And that liking produces a little internal tension. I like that. I like it. And that little liking, if recognized, it's just liking. And if, if pleasant, if it's noticed, it's just pleasant. But if it goes unnoticed, the pleasant leads to liking. Liking leads to wanting. And wanting, even though it's often associated with something pleasant that we want, the state of wanting itself is an increased state of tension. And it it literally 
has a comes what comes with it is a mental state of of um, a coloring of our perception that says, "I want it, I need it, I have to have it, and I won't be happy until I get it." So, in that little internal dialogue, that little internal narrative, I I am literally born into a journey. I'm born into an imaginary me that has just been triggered by this pleasant experience and I want to make sure that I can continue to have it and I'm going to then do everything I need to do to make it happen again. Because, of course, it's a changing condition, so it begins to fade away. So it's a, something that you, maybe you can relate to more than a meditation experience is you may see somebody here who you like, who produces, you see them or you hear them or you notice the way they walk or the kind of shoes they're wearing, or whatever it is, it produces a pleasant feeling. And then there's followed by liking that person. Remember, this is a person. Followed by liking and then really liking, wanting, and the pressure is building. And out of that momentary like out of that momentary pleasant feeling comes this proliferation, this this propulsion, this compulsion to um, plan, to, in the case of that person, to date, to mate, to marry, to divorce. <laughs> Our mind can just go into this journey, and we they call it because it happens a lot on retreats. We call it a vipassana romance. <clears throat> Now, nothing has really happened. That's the amazing thing. But our mind has gone on this journey. And in the middle of the journey, in the middle of this drama, is the imagined version of ourselves that is bereft with dissatisfaction until they can consummate, I don't mean you know necessarily in the sensual way, but satisfy that desire. And... <clears throat> and then maybe, of course, you maybe at the end you you talk to that person, and usually, as it's been in the case for me when I've had what are called VRs or Vipassana, is the person has com- been completely oblivious to me, and they're nothing like I imagined they were. <laughs> and <clears throat> but while we are in that state of wanting because on the surface it's associated with getting something pleasant, our body goes into a state of stress, a state of suspended happiness, a, a state of, um, uh, of a coloring of the present moment as I can't really be happy now. So our identity view gets recreated again and again as, as centered around lack centered around a problem that needs to be solved, something I need to become, some place I need to go, something I need to acquire, someone I need to be. All of that's completely, utterly imaginary, mind-created. And it, it creates a lot of stress. The reverse is also true. Unpleasant produces not liking, not liking produces aversion. Aversion then produces more tension and, and that tension has to go somewhere and it often comes into our mind. And I think this, you'll see this a lot around our political situation. 
produces an unpleasant feeling. There's this flood of aversion, not liking. And then our mind just goes into in purging our, that feeling by projecting it onto somebody and having that, that suspended happiness and the fantasy. If that person doesn't change, if, they don't, if I can't get rid of that person, if they don't stop doing what they're doing, I can't be happy. So we have put our, we, have, we, we humans create what the Buddha called Lokiya Sukha. We create the kind of happiness that depends on conditions being the way we want them to be. A dependent happiness. And our identity gets built around objects, things, people, situations that, we, that our identity becomes dependent on for our well-being. And then we end up uh, in a state of insecurity. Is it not true? And things don't always turn out the way that we want them to. We don't always want what we get, and we don't always get what we want. This is two ways that our, <clears throat> our mind tends to turn those simple feeling tones into states of identity and suffering. So what do we do as meditators? Ideally, you catch the moments that are pleasant and you let them run through you. You feel them as pleasant. And you stay with mindfulness at that time. You feel it. And, at what, and even if you didn't catch it at that moment and you start to notice that your mind is starting to percolate a fantasy about something or someone, you notice that. You keep aerating it with your kind attention. You keep relating to that fantasy, that desire, the object of desire, relating to it rather than relating from it, as though I have to have to have this. You can say, "Oh, that's the. This is the desire. This is the identity around a desire. This is my romantic fantasy. Just to be able to know it. We don't get rid of it. We don't suppress it. We don't judge ourselves for it." We meet it with kindness. That's a, that dependent kind of happiness, that's a state of stress. And I love myself, so I'm going I'm to try to... Um, I'm going to try to meet that with kindness and interrupt it with attention, not with judgment. But first and foremost, I have to recognize the identity of the seeker of the one who's searching after some kind of object of pleasure or the the seeker who's searching to get rid of the object of pain. You know, it's it's so difficult right now whenever the word aversion goes into my mind not to have it just immediately get projected onto the politics and the politicians. Yeah, I thought this was going to be a politics-free zone today, but then it just comes right into my mind. And uh, we're all at the effect of, of having a challenging time as humans navigating the realm of things that are hard to bear, things that are unpleasant. And the Buddha's teaching specifically was around the way to cure this is to feel it, feel the unpleasant. The cure for pain is in the pain. Good and bad, pleasure and pain are mixed. And essentially it's saying, as a Rumi poem does, if you don't have both, you're not one of us.
pleasure and pain. Then it turns out that that all conditions are uh, unstable. And our identity around praise, which we talked about earlier, being the stage on the stage, sage on the stage, gives way to blame. We have the worldly winds, the eight worldly winds that all of our minds and bodies cycle through. Praise and, and blame. Fame and shame. Pleasure, pain, gain and loss. If you don't have all eight of those, you're not one of us. To know that this is, to, to know that this is the nature of things, then we our identification with praise comes a little looser. Identity around praise is completely insecure. Identity around success, completely, utterly insecure. Identity around pleasure, completely insecure. Identity around fame, completely insecure. We all have praise, blame, fame, shame, pleasure, pain, gain, loss. So by understanding the, that, there, it is, that we cannot depend for our sense of identity, sense of well-being, on just one side of the equation, um, frees us from that, uh, begins to free us a little bit from that dependency. The other thing about about identity and I especially identity with with um, having more of the pleasurable and getting more of the getting less of the unpleasant <clears throat> remember earlier today we we talked about um, the unreliability of identity with youth, with health, with life. Our bodies are always changing. You can't tell them not to get old. As Jack Cornfield calls this body, a -a (laughs) rent-a-body. So the clinging to youth, clinging to health, clinging to life brings stress. The letting go of that pride in youth and enchantment with youth, enchantment with health, enchantment with life brings freedom, brings a letting go. So any identity with the three prides, pride in youth, health, and life, creates, you know, that the image often that's used is rope burn. You feel the friction of holding on to something that is inherently changing. But then what happens in those little those little dramas that go through our mind again and again in in pursuit of what I want to happen or what I don't want to happen. That state of suspended happiness basically creates a condition, an inner condition, and we feel it in our body, that our well-being, our happiness, depends on time. When it gets associated with a future that never arrives, we're in a constant state of waiting hoping, expecting. And there is in that identity tethered to time 
so much insecurity because you don't know how things will turn out. And so the extent, to, to the extent that I postpone my well-being to some other time that I don't know how it will unfold, I'm in a state of, of insecurity. And we wonder why we're insecure with so much identification with body, identification with time, and time is always running out. And we may not appreciate that, that, uh, that so much of our identity stress is bound up in the way we think about time. And specifically, one particular common metaphor that's used in our culture, and we use it just completely unconsciously, which is the time is money metaphor. I don't have enough time. I'm not using my time well. I, I'm, I'm wasting time. I don't have enough time. I have too much time. And yet, when we stop, we experience what we could call real time. Where is the past now? Where is the future now? Where is even the present now? We see that these, these are just fabrications of our mind. This whole construction of ourselves in time as the one who's come from the past, zooming through the present on the way to the future when I'm going to either be less happy, less unhappy, or more happy. That's all mind-made. And an inter- a sad part is what happens to real time while we're busy making plans, while we're busy associating our well-being with how things turn out. Wrapping our whole identity around where we're going or where we've been. The past and who we shared it with, the future who we'll be with. It is in our human conditioning and human nature to tether our identity to the past and the future. And it's a source. Until we actually see it for what we're actually doing, it is a, we end up being bound up in a lot of stress. Whenever I talk about time in this way, I, I think of this poem from the... Um, the ecstatic Sufi poet uh, Hafez, where the poem is called Stop Being So Religious. He says, What do people who are sad have in common? It seems they have all built a shrine to the past and often go there to do a strange wail and worship. What is the beginning of happiness? It's to stop being so religious like that. And I wrote verse 2 myself. What do people who are anxious and worried have in common? It seems they have all built a shrine, an identity, a shrine to the future, and often go there to do a strange wail and worry. What's the beginning of happiness? It's to stop being so religious like that. But really, we don't stop. We just notice, oh, there's my mind. 
associating my well-being with how things turn out. There's the planning mind. There's the remembering mind. There's the rehearsing mind. There's the worrying mind. We, we see that all of this happens. All The whole, the creation of our identity moment by moment happens moment by moment. Now, right now, after your last worry has ceased and, last, and before the next desire arises, what is your experience now? Where is the identity? What's it like when there is no view of yourself in time? In other words, a story of yourself in time. Poet Rilke, we are the driving ones. Ah, but the step of time. Think of it as a dream in what forever remains. All that is hurrying soon will be over with. Only what lasts can bring us to the truth. Young men, don't put your trust in the trials of flight into the hot and quick. All things already rest. Darkness and morning light. Flower and book. Associating our identity with getting what we want, not wanting what we get, is what the, that same poet Hafez called uh, the um, the counterfeit coins, as he puts it. Well, I'll read his whole poem for you. He says, I know that the voice of depression still calls to you, and I know those habits that can ruin your life still send their invitations, but you're with the friend now. And the way I take that, it means you're aware now. You're here. You're awake. You're aware. The friend is that in you which is awake. You can stay that way. You're with the friend now, and you look so much stronger. You can stay that way and even bloom. Keep squeezing drops of the sun from your prayers and work and music and from your companions' beautiful laughter. Keep squeezing drops of the sun from the sacred hands and glance of your beloved and, my dear, from the most insignificant movements of your own holy body. So we're getting closer here. Learn to recognize the counterfeit coins that may buy you just a moment of pleasure, but then drag you for days like a broken man behind a farting camel. (laughs) You're with the friend now. Learn what actions bring delight, what actions bring freedom and love. Keep squeezing drops of the sun from your prayers and work and music, from your companions' beautiful laughter, and from the most insignificant movements of your own holy body. So now, sweet ones, be wise, he says. Cast all your votes for dancing. So what happens when we dance? Once we get through the self-consciousness, 
are able to notice the self-consciousness and it fades away. There's an immediacy. And when we sit and the and the past thoughts cease and before the next one arises, or we notice the thoughts of past or notice the thoughts of future, and there's aware presence, the presence of awareness. What happens? When our identity with time, with going, with having been, when it all goes into quiescence for a moment. We realize what Thich Nhat Hanh said. He says, you, as you are, I'm adding the as you are, you who are the richest person on earth, who've been going around begging for a living, stop being the destitute child, the hungry ghost I was talking about earlier. Come home, reclaim your heritage. We find this natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of our own nature. And we've been postponing it by getting getting caught up in the identity of the one who does not have enough. Where is the evidence for anything lacking right now? if you don't consult your memory. Peace is here. Dalai Lama, when asked what surprised him most about humanity, answered man, because he sacrifices his health in order to make money. Then he sacrifices money to recuperate his health. Then he's so anxious about the future that he does not enjoy the present. The result being that he does not live in the present or the future. He lives as if he's never going to die and then dies having never really lived. This is a dharma of non-postponement. Stepping, not getting on the wheel, but off the wheel. And how do we do that? We start to notice the wheel. Notice that that state that our mind goes into of of lack of of what the Buddha called bhava or becoming, and this is that it's that state that he said he spoke about in that passage to Rohitasa. Within this fathom long body lies the world, lies the cause of the world. What makes us spin out our reaction to the immediate experience? in this fathom-long body that lies the end of the world, of all this becoming, all this going. Within this fathom-long body lies the path leading to the end of all this going. Like even the way we frame, it's a wonderful thing to be able to frame in our mind. I think people go crazy when they can't think of the past or future. And to be able to remember people, it's a beautiful thing. To be able to plan is an, inev- is an important thing. All that happens. So any notion that you have to give up planning or remembering, <laughs> that's a misunderstanding of the teachings. 
But the tendency when we plan and remember is we get lost in them. We get lost in our plans and our body gets into that state of suspended happiness. We get lost in the past and our body is affected. We, we, we lose touch with uh, real-time experience of ourselves. But if, somebody, if you couldn't think of the past or future, that, that would be problematic. But what we do is we, we try not to live in it. We try to stay where we are, noticing that we're thinking of the future, noticing that we're thinking about the past. And in that way, we can see when we're constructing an identity based on time. Last thing on, ta- on identity with time and identity with the body. Then we'll sit and just step out of time a little more. So this was my favorite teaching on time from Alan Watts, who said... When we make music, we don't do it in order to reach a certain point, such as the end of the composition. If that were the purpose of music, then obviously the fastest players would be the best. Also, when we're dancing, we are not aiming to arrive at a particular place on the floor, as in taking a journey. When we dance, the journey itself is the point. We make, when we play music, the playing itself is the point. Exactly the same is true in meditation. Meditation is the discovery that the point of life is always arrived at in the immediate moment. Now what does that do with that whole view of yourself in time? That makes sense what I just asked. Life is always fulfilled in the immediate moment. What happened to that that version of you that needs to get somewhere to be okay? You mostly need that version of yourself to suffer. You really don't need anything to be free in your mind. This is what I'm talking about, mental freedom. You don't need anything. The teachings are suggesting that you be as you are, that you are the richest person on earth. I just stopped myself from telling another story. <laughs> I'll, re- I'll continue. If you meditate for an ul- ulterior motive, such as to improve your mind, to improve your character, to be more efficient in life, you've got your eye on the future and you're not meditating. The future is a concept that doesn't exist. There's no such thing as tomorrow. There never will be because time is always now. That's one of the things we discover when we stop talking to ourselves, stop thinking for a few moments. We see there's only a present, only an eternal now. So one meditates for the enjoyment of it. Here I would interpose that the essential principle that meditation can be fun. It's not something you do as a grim duty. 
The trouble with religion today is it's so mixed up with grim duties, you do it because it's good for you. You, It's a kind of self-punishment. Meditation, when correctly done, has nothing to do with all that. And this is where he gives away his beat generation um, roots. He says it's a kind of digging the present. It's a kind of grooving with the eternal now. And brings us into a state of peace where we can understand that the point of life, the place where it's at, is simply here and now. But for our our identity views that need complications, that need complex situations, that see life uh, mentally as complicated, really life in real time is very simple. It's just six things. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. The unfolding presence. Very simple. But our mind has gotten, an identity has gotten bound up with experiencing ourselves as living complicated lives. That's a story. There was a little more about that, but I forgot now. leave it at that now. So there's just this moment. Of course there is past that we can think about in future. And it's a way of orienting ourselves to where we are. It's useful. But if we don't, if we spend all of our time living in that identity, our bodies remain frozen in that state of suspended relief. This is why the heart of our practice of dealing lovingly with the identity and view is to, one, wake up to what our mind is doing, two, put our mind in our body and our body in our mind, to let our nervous system get regulated again, to become, to reclaim our sense of being a human being, not just a human doing. That's identity is, is um, built around uh, doing and busyness. So it's more, as my teacher Joseph Goldstein put it, it's more learning how to settle back into the moment. To be not just aware of our front body and what's what's ahead, but also aware of our back body. A 360 degree panoramic sense of ourselves in space. A kind of regal experience of being right in the middle of life, right where it's connecting with you. Try it on. You, the richest person on earth. Or as Jack Nicholson said in the movie, as good as it gets. What if this is as good as it gets? Let's try it on for a moment.
last thought. You know that I was talking about that culture that saw the past backwards this morning. There's another culture that many many of you may have read about during the um, big tsunamis that happened in the 90s in, in Asia. And in Burma, there was a uh, indigenous community that lived along the coast and they lived right next door to a much more modern, acculturated, modern culture. And this, this more indigenous group that lived on the land, they both lived on the land, these two communities, off fish, etc. But this more indigenous group were called the Mokan. And the Mokan survived the tsunami where their village next door that were much more modern perished completely. So people wanted to study how the Mokan were able to to make it through the tsunami and under, understand nature, understand the seas, etc. And they, in the course of their studying the culture and the fact that they they knew the rhythms of the, they knew when the tide went way out that you know it's problematic, etc. And they and they lived in harmony with the nature there. But they also, in studying them, they also some people who had visited the community saw also their language structure. And identity is very much tied to the way we think. You can see the the whole difference between our experience of ourselves when it's immediate and direct and when we're thinking about ourselves. As uh, James J. Audubon put it, you've heard this before, if there's a difference between the bird and what the field guidebook says, believe the bird. So the Moken, getting back to the Moken, there were two words in their vocabulary that were absent, that are very much part of our vocabulary. One of the words that was absent was the word want. Identity, a lot built on want. The other, which is kind of mind-blowing and pertains to everything we've been talking about, the other word that was absent from their vocabulary was when. When will I get what I want? (laughs) Absent those two? Uh, the, The construction of our sense of ourselves in time, in lack, melts away. So let's just enjoy a few moments with no want and no when, or as good as it gets. Please refresh your posture. Maybe raise your hands up. Shake them out.
but just a simple object of mindfulness to notice as part of our field of meditation will be to some of the mental states that are common that tend to, when unrecognized, lead us on that journey into time, into thinking we can't be happy now. First one that's most obvious I referred to is the wanting mind. You may see the wanting mind. You can recognize it. That's wanting. The aversive mind, the not liking mind, you can see that. Just treat it as a welcome guest in your meditation. Be able, but relate to it. Oh, this is wanting. This is aversion. This is fear. All the kinds of not liking. Anger. Frustration. The worried mind. We talked about the associating our, our happiness to how things turn out. The restless, agitated, worried mind. To be able to notice that. Oh, this is worrying. The doubting mind. The, the identity of ourselves is, I can't do this. I'm not getting it. I'm confused and how we create a sense of ourselves as, as um, thinking that we have to get something that we're not getting. To be able to just say, oh, this is doubt. This is confusion. The very thing when recognized with our attention that would un- unrecognized would cause us to search. When recognized, it reminds us of just the changing experience, the changing internal weather that's happening right here. We don't have to go anywhere to be happy. So just highlighting those states of mind, wanting, not wanting, worry, restlessness, doubt. And then welcoming any other moods and emotions sad, happy, and instead of experiencing things, these as problems to be solved or something to get through, they're just more weather to be experienced, just internal weather. And to understand that what comes into your mind and body is selfless in that it arises by itself, it takes shape for a while in the body and it fades away. It's not me. It's not mine. You are not defined by the moods or the states of mind that come into your consciousness. They're conditioned by habit in time. And what is the beginning of those conditions? They're beginningless. So they're dependent on causes. Causes and conditions are not me. So we learn how to welcome as Rumi says, welcome everything, even if it's a crowd of sorrows that empty your house of its furniture. We meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. As he says, they may be clearing you out for some new delight. But this attitude of welcoming, kindness, recognizing them as changing conditions and not self, not me, not mine. But we begin once again by settling our mind into our body, closing our eyes, feeling that 
gentle stilling that happens, a sense of seclusion. Once we found our body, then relating to it, not as my body, but as the body. Just feeling its sensations, aliveness, vibration, pulsing. So moving beyond the idea of the body to the felt experience. Connecting once again with the gentle movements that the body makes when it breathes. Seeing if it's possible to enjoy the body's experience of its own breath. that there's no need to alter or direct the breath. Just let the body breathe itself. Enjoy the selflessness of this sitting, breathing body. Connect and sustain the attention through the duration of each in-breath and out-breath. Just the feeling of the sitting body sitting. Till either some other sensation, particular sensation calls your attention, or a sound, or a mood state of the heart or mind. Something becomes stronger than the breath. We let that fill our awareness and welcome it. Sensing its pleasantness or its unpleasantness. Sensing whether it's neither pleasant or unpleasant. And as that experience fades, less prominent or compelling or has passed away, just in support of remaining anchored to the living present, we connect again with the simple experience of the sitting body breathing, just this breath, just this moment.
sounds, sensations, moods. All being known effortlessly. experience of immediacy, no me, no you, no self at all, just what there is. Experiences being known.
if there's any struggle right now, no need to be the struggler. Just notice that this is what struggling feels like. Relate to it as a changing condition. You've accepted the sense of the state that you're experiencing. Feel free to very mindfully refresh yourself and begin again. No evaluation, no keeping score. Nothing to become, just being the knowing. Just as they are. Just this moment. Every moment is a new beginning in that regard. You can always begin again. Five more minutes.
when the gong is struck, just be aware of hearing. So effortlessly the sound is known. And as the sound fades, the impulse arises, the selfless impulse arises to open the eyes. Be aware of the impulse to open the eyes. And then be aware of the opening of the eyes, which is also selfless. Be aware of the arising of outer sight, seeing. And then be aware of any other movements that you make, that are made. The practice continues, continuity of awareness. Any comments, questions, descriptions related to our topic today and anything? Here, there's someone right here, just to your left. Thank you. I feel like I should be busting out a tune with this. Yes, feel free. I wanted to just touch on what you were talking about. Can you, can you hear me? Yes, best if you keep it fairly close to your okay. mouth. Yeah. So I just wanted to touch on what you talked about earlier. And I had a message to share Um, it's a message from my spiritual mother who's recently passed and it kind of touches on the past, the future and the present and throughout my time with her she repeatedly said anytime you go to your groups or your gatherings or you do your meditation she's like share this message from me (laughs) so I felt it was kind of my calling. So it's very simple. um, And I use it to this day because sometimes I dwell back in the past or worry about the future. And it's just very simple. She said, she actually sang it to me, (laughs) but it's yesterday was history. Tomorrow is a mystery. Today is a gift. That's why we call it the present. So every day I wake up, whether I had a really bad day at work the day before, or I'm worried about my son getting his driver's license, you know, in a couple of weeks. Um, Every day I wake up, and it's a new day, and the sun is out, and I always just think of it as a gift. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. Any other 
experiences in the practice? Um, I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about identity and uh, non-attachment to the outcome Mm. and applying that to what's actually happening now in the present moment for everyone. So non-attachment to the outcome of politics, democracy, non-attachment to the outcome of climate change, and how a practical way of working with this and uh, the way that I try to remind myself is to do what I can do. It's like the serenity prayer. Know what you can change, what you can't change, and the wisdom to know the difference. And then you let it be. And this is where it comes into being in the present moment, not like striving, trying to make something happen. Um, and you can rest, rest your mind, rest your body of non-attachment to the outcome and be with life in the moment where you can learn or be with some joy, even in the midst of chaos and um, this swirling hurricane that's happening around all of us. Well said. Thank you. You, you, yeah, there was, you gave a beautiful teaching. Just to bring it back a little bit to some of the, the Buddha's teaching about how to, how to have an, a clear mind and an open heart that really sees the reality of so many things that are hard to bear and how to maintain some balance with that is a, a daily reflection uh, that um, at the heart of it is um, there's three different versions that I think are are useful and they're they're all some modern some more uh, traditional the traditional Reflection is that all beings, both collectively and individually, are the heirs or inheritors of their their conditions. That their happiness or their unhappiness depends on conditions, not on my will or my wish. So that's the it's the antidote for caring so much about how things turn out that you become just um, overwhelmed with sorrow and inability to appreciate the limitations of what you can control and what you can't. So the, another version, especially when it comes to the, the people in our life who we would really like to, uh, to help. Uh, the, the recitation, the daily reflection is, I care about you, but I cannot keep you from suffering. And then the third one is, um, there are many different, there are many versions, but this one has also been very helpful to me. Although I wish things were otherwise, things are as they are. So first and foremost, opening to the way it is. And all of this already implies that you care enough to try everything you can. It's not a passive, indifferent 
response to the things that we can't change. It's a passionate response that knows the limitations. So just what, you know, essentially what you said more simply and succinctly. Um, but it really is at the heart of the um, the Buddha's teaching at stepping out of the, the identity built around uh, personal blame and grandiosity in terms of the, the what we think of as as our um, the our responsibility you know it is each person has responsibility but our often our our sense of responsibility is grandiose and way beyond what we can actually um, affect and so it already assumes that you care so much that's what you know that caring is the natural face of being open but then can't always change things yeah and so that that's what gives us the the equanimity reflections that reflections on keeping balance is what allows us to be open-hearted in this world and not just fall into grief and sorrow and um, ineffectiveness so thank you Please, right behind. Hi, my question is about <clears throat> the meditation technique a little bit more. Because I noticed that when I feel I want to be very present and just like be in the moment, I, I tend to get into this state of like, kind of like between awake and falling asleep. Yes. And I feel like I'm almost like actually falling you're, asleep. Yeah, you're generally... At this time of the day, typically, <laughs> we, all, we joke here at Spirit Rock that it, in the afternoons it looks like the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. <laughs> <laughs> so I think my question but, on that is that... Oh, oh go ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead. I wanted you to finish your question. Yeah, so my question is that, is this the right way to do meditation? Or like, should I try to help myself to be, be actually awake? Or like, with this state of falling asleep? Thank you for the question. <laughs> So, as I was saying, it's inevitable that um, there are certain times of the day where there will be dullness, no matter how much you you try. Uh, there may be just biorhythms, the afternoon, the food after having eaten, those things tend to produce more dullness. So your vital energy will likely diminish at certain times in the day. And during those times... You, you can do certain things in your practice to help arouse a little energy. Like one of the traditional recommendations at those moments is that you stand up. And you just that little extra energy to hold your body up will sometimes balance the tranquility. So you still have attention, but you're not sinking. We call it sinking mind, or the Tibetans call it stupid shamatha, stupid meditation. We just start... But uh, sinking mind and stupid shamatha, those are, even if you drift at this time of the day, there's still a a healing to your nervous system. But you won't learn much. But if you arouse a little bit of energy, if you do more, if you do walking and walk really thoroughly, you really move, not move fast, but move with a lot of attention and you just aerate your body a little bit by moving, that sometimes will arouse your energy. And so the, the balance of sitting and walking, which we haven't done today because we're, 
we're mostly, we've been doing more sitting than walking and more talking than, than, than uh, walking. But often the balance of sitting and walking will, will pick up your energy a little bit, your vital energy, because there is a, an ongoing balance that you will find in the course of your practice. So never make a conclusion about the way it is now will be the way it is and that you're doing it wrong. There's an ever-changing balance between tranquility, calm, peace, you know, tranquility, and energy. When tranquility is higher, which it will be when your mind is in the same location as your body, when tranquility is high and energy is low, we get dull. When, when energy is high and tranquility is low, we feel restless. So that change between restlessness and dullness, striking the balance where there's enough energy and enough tranquility, it's ever-changing. Slowly in your practice, if you practice really regularly, you'll find that you, you'll, you find a balance and that you've, you'll find that you can be incredibly tranquil, incredibly calm, and still have very bright energy at the same time. But it's, it, the first part of a day-long retreat, that energy, tranquility, balance is very unstable. So you'll likely go between one and the other, restless and dull, restless and dull. Uh, but don't give up. Don't make a conclusion about that. Just see what the antidote for restlessness we would we would uh, just settle the mind and the body. You widen your view. Like, let your mind be a little bit more open. You know, let your, don't, try to, don't try too hard when you're restless. It's like the, the uh, metaphor used is, uh, is, is from the Zen tradition. The way to control a cow is to give it a big pasture. You give it a lot of the... the if you try to corral it in too tightly, it goes crazy. You give it a big pasture, eventually it quiets down. So you want to widen your view when you're restless. You want to, you want to be very soothing and kind. So you, 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 or you, you even ref- you look at something that will gladden your heart. It will take away some of the, it'll reduce a little bit, bit of the tension. So you want to gladden the heart, calm the body, calm the mind when it's restless. Uh, when it's dull, you want to pick up your energy. And, and we find different antidotes as we move along. Uh, what about like maybe like opening the eyes? Fine. Is that, is that okay? That's fine. I think that helps me to be yeah. awake. Ideally, when you open the eyes, though, you don't want to be looking at anything. You want to just have the eyes open, unfocused. You're still attention still drawn to the body and the body. Thank you. Thank you for the question. Appreciate it. Anybody on this side, please. Yeah, I loved when you were sharing about real time and I work with kids and I find that kids are experts at being present and just like luxuriating in the moment-to-moment experience of life. Um, And I also work within, like, bureaucratic systems where there's deadlines and pressure, where time is real. And I have a really hard time moving between those realms and those spaces. Um, 
And I'm curious about just exploring like pressure of deadlines when there is some real pressure to move at a faster pace. Yes. I don't have the answer to that, but I will say something I've noticed for myself is that, um, and maybe it's my body type, is that I I would say that, um, what is it called, ectomorphic or something, a little more long and lean, and sometimes this body type is described as a nervous system looking for a body. And the more endomorphic, you know, a little more sturdy, sometimes called a a body looking for a nervous system, (laughs) a little bit more phlegmatic, you know, a little more... A little more dense, but as a as a nervous system looking for a body, uh, the tendency of mind is to do things fast, and uh, that doing things fast often because of the cultural influence and the, that kind of collective uh, time driven agreement where there's deadlines tends to uh, produce not just the, the speed, but also a mental state of rushing. And rushing and speed are not the same thing. So the stress that we experience is not so much the speed that you're going at. The stress is often the mental state of rushing that we aren't really noticing. I call it urgency. So nevertheless, if, it is, if you do feel the sense of urgency, that is a signal to breathe, to take your time, to move quickly, but not rush. That you will, that as, who was it who said, we'll all reach the finish line. Waking up to where you are is the purpose of life. So it's... So even if there's a deadline, you're likely to be more efficient, get it done, whatever you're going to do, not from, not from the state of, emer- of urgency or rushing, but from a state of calm. So, so it's, so like it's like really pausing? just... Pausing? What's Did that? you say like yeah, pausing? It's just track, track. It's tracking your, the state of mind that you're, that you're... So not only do we pay attention to what's happening at our different doors of perception or whatever we're doing. But we also pay attention to the way we're doing things, the attitude of mind that we're bringing to what we're doing. And so we want to be equally sensitive to that sense of urgency or rushing or the way that the filters through which we're perceiving our life. And those are completely negotiable. And generally you call it a pause, generally if you notice that there's a sense of urgency or you notice that there's rushing, when awareness, when mindfulness meets that experience of urgency and rushing, there is something in us that knows this is not a helpful mental state. There's an intelligence in seeing clearly what the mind is doing. And without really needing to do anything, get it right or anything, something in us will relax in that moment. Something in us will self-correct. But first and most important is you have to notice that there's this, that you're being driven by this sense of urgency. 
And once you feel that, then you watch, to, watch your whole system start to readjust. But don't believe me. I think it's a revolutionary act to go, it's kind of countercultural when there's a nervous, a collective nervous system of... Yeah, you rush. don't want to reinforce that that's the way it is. That there's a certain point where we have to be our own authority about how it is that we function best. And we start, and it's just as important to let the world adjust to us. Everybody that tries to fit into the, to the dominant paradigm, it, it, we then often feel victimized instead of our own authority. And, and we're, at least in this context, there are no victims, there are only volunteers. I stole that line from Byron Katie. Thank you. In this context, there are victims in this world, not to minimize that. There's one more thing about... Um, I forget it. Anything else you notice during the sitting or anything about the instruction of working? Please, last thing, and then we'll do a little walk and then then there's two more big parts to uh, self-view. Please. I was just going to say, um, when when it works sometimes and you're in the moment, it's both good, it's both good for me, but also I suddenly say, whoa, I'm anxious. You know, wow, I have like an underlying anxiety. And it's not like a panicked feeling like, oh no, I'm anxious, but um, but, you know, it's kind of a helpful tool to say, Wow, I didn't realize I was like anxious a lot because yes. when you're actually in like that moment, yes. it's kind of um I mean, then you can I guess deal with it or whatever. Exactly. <laughs> so that's the part where the intelligence of awareness starts to the process of self-correcting. But with anxiety, you know, generally our meditative instruction is when there's when there's a mental state like anxiety or fear or sadness or or wanting or aversion, we tend to we are encouraged to turn our attention toward it, to recognize it, to accept it, to study what happens to it when we notice it, and to see that it's not self, that it's just doing its own thing. That's the general direction of our practice. But most of us do not have enough mental strength and enough confidence to be with the full breadth and depth of anxiety without getting more anxious, getting anxious about being anxious and it compounding. So with anxiety, you, you want to turn toward it, take in the information, let your intelligence work on it, but you don't want to stay long. You want to widen your view, like I was talking about restlessness. You, you also want to find something in your body, in your in this, in your vicinity that's not anxious. Some place that, a resource, place where you can rest your attention uh, and go back and forth, maybe. So, like your hands touching. Is that soothing? Yeah. Yeah, just, you could feel anxious, and if you redirect your attention to your hands there, you're staying conscious. You're not just checking out. You're not just getting disembodied and then, which reinforces the anxiety. So much anxiety I'd say a, a high percentage, 85% of anxiety is from being disembodied. 
and that habit of living so much in rational mind and problem solving, our bodies are left frozen. And they, one of the ways that we, that we, um, one of the ways that the, eff- the effect of that is that we start getting anxious and it calls us. It says, don't forget me. But it's not always easy just to come back and feel, okay, let me be the first one to die of anxiety here. That's the meditative awareness says, this is what's happening, let me open to it. But with anxiety, it sometimes compounds. So you just do a little titration, a little, a little what they call in, in um, um, trauma work, pendulation. You go touch it a little bit, move away, touch it, but stay conscious, don't check out. Thank you for naming that. You're not alone with anxiety. It's also important as you learn to study these different mental states, like anxiety, like sadness, like the other other moods and emotions, that these moods and emotions are not self. They're not my. They're not me. They're not myself. They're changing conditions. They're internal weather, and the tendency when we experience anxiety, we go, I am anxious. It becomes self-defining. And then if you experience that frequently, then I, I bet there are people in this room that walk around telling people, I'm an anxious person. There are no anxious people. That person who's anxious fades away in a moment of experiencing anxiety. It's just anxiety. So you can then see the momentariness of anxiety. It doesn't define you. It's a change. It's like weather. And, and in that way, and this is what one of the radical insights of the Buddha is that all these moods that we tend to say, this is me, this is mine, this is not myself. This is a, it arises, it fades away. It arises and fades away by itself. And anything that arises and fades away cannot be me. It doesn't define me. It's, weather is not myself. That's basically what you're saying. Now, do we take the weather personally? Some people do. Yeah, God, it's. I must be creating this. <laughs> the internal weather really is conditioned in the same way. But that's not, and I don't want to belabor this, but that's part, that's at the heart of the study of the identity view is that we tend to personalize something that is really quite impersonal. Body, moods, and then as we, in the afternoon, in the next, our next little pod, we'll talk about the thinking mind a little bit more. The personalizing of the thinking mind, how to work with the thinking mind. So 10 minutes of walking, since our time is a little short, 10 minutes of, and really maybe do it in a a pace where you can, where you aerate your body a little bit. Find a spot, walk to and fro, back and forth, really anchor your attention. Anybody that wants to check in with me, feel free to come up, even though I had some super spicy food and it's rumbling around my stomach, but come anyway.
last little piece on identity with time, just to bring it much more closely into something that I alluded to earlier in the day. And it's the identity with age. Um, There is a comedian named Larry Miller that wrote a poem of sorts, a passage about this very human tendency to create an identity around age and the impact of that tendency creates this kind of mental momentum of going from the past when we were young to the old. That view that we've come from the past, passing through here on our way. And often it's bound up in age. And he, he expresses it beautifully and maybe you will recognize yourself in his writing. He says, Do you realize the only time in our lives when we like to get old is when we're kids? If you're less than 10 years old, you're so excited about aging that you think in fractions. How old are you? I'm four and a half. You're never 36 and a half. (laughs) You're four and a half going on five. That's the key. You get into your teens, now they can't hold you back. You jump to the next number or even a few ahead. How old are you? I'm going to be 16. You could be 13, but hey, you're going to be 16. And then the greatest day of your life, you become 21. Even the words sound like a ceremony. You become 21. Yes. But then you turn 30. Ooh, what happened there? Makes you sound like bad milk. (laughs) He turned. We had to throw him out. There's no fun now. You're just a sour dumpling. What's wrong? What changed? You become 21. You turn 30. Then you're pushing 40. Whoa, put on the brakes. It's all slipping away before you know it. You reach 50, and then your dreams are gone. But wait, you make it to 60. You didn't think you would. You become 21, turn 30, push 40, reach 50, make it to 60. You built up so much speed that you hit 70. And after that, it's a day-by-day thing. You hit Wednesday. You get into your 80s and every day is a complete cycle. You hit lunch, turn 4.30, reach bedtime. It doesn't end there. Into your 90s, you start going backwards. I was just 92. Then a strange thing happens. 
if you make it over a hundred, you become a little kid again. I'm a hundred and a half. <laughs> May we all make it to a healthy hundred and a half. So isn't it interesting how in real time we don't have an age. It's part of the identity with the body age that we say, I'm 40, I'm this. But that's just a view of ourselves. And it's a partial view of ourselves. It's the view that is, I, that the view based on the strong identity with the body, the view based on the identity with time and going. And what we can realize, because no one has ever experienced in real time an age. It requires memory. It requires a view. It requires a sakaya ditti, a self-view, to construct yourself as a particular age. Yet, here we are, present, unable in real time to even know our gender without our memory, to know all, to know our clan, our group, or anything. All of those constructions of self, the part of our, part of our um, social, collective, communal view of ourselves, we we have all those identities: identity with gender, orientation, ability, race, ethnicity religion, but those are part of a view of self. They, are, they shape our world so much that we, we, as I talked about earlier in the day, we never minimize them. We honor them, we respect them, and in fact, when, we, when those, the different identities that are related to our body are not honored and recognized, not those identities related to our individuality are not recognized. We often feel unseen, marginalized, othered, uh, and you know, from the extreme of, of ignorance to outright, outright hostility. So it's important that we recognize all of these identities, either based on time or based on group, etc. But they are still part of identity view. They are a partial truth. And if we just stay in that world of these particular identities, we miss a a more unconditional, uh, one way of talking about it, a deeper part of ourselves that doesn't have, that isn't limited to any group, identity, or time. And that's the, the, we'll call it the you, but the experience of yourself. Non-conceptual experience of yourself. Non-historical experience of yourself in real time. Where's the person who, has, who works with the kids? There you are. 
It's a beautiful thing to watch kids step out of time, just be out of time. But the cool thing about being an adult, we tend to romanticize the kids' version and try to reclaim that. But the coolest thing about being an adult, and again, not, don't get caught up in the identity of adult, but of being of our development is that not only can we step out of time, but we have the, the secret sauce for making that meaningful, which is awareness, which is clear comprehension that it's happening. Where the kids, they're immersed in real time, but they don't necessarily have the mindfulness to go with it. What we have is the capacity to, to actually know that there is an element of our nature right here that is not part of any identity, that is free of self. It's just awake. That is sufficient, whole, enough, not lacking, not aging, not dying, nor re- being reborn. It's just awake. That is, it's a, that is actually home. And a little bit, um, not a little bit, but I'll try to talk a little bit about, this is what the Buddha recognized when he saw through the pride in all these identities, pride in youth, pride in health, pride in life, pride in in uh, clan, pride in race, pride in all those things. In fact, when he created the, the Sangha, he made everyone, no matter what group you were from, everybody wore the same uniform. You left your, your various identities at the door. There was no privileged identity. That was, one, that, was that, that time's form of social action. Now we need to really give voice to everyone in their different, in their affinity groups. We need, they need, people need to be seen because they've been so othered. But the teachings don't stop there. They ask us to, to not have any cherished view of ourself that can become a source of stress. that to have all our various identities, but not to be bound by them. So the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree, studied his body, saw that the body was always changing. There was no self to be found in the body. The body was a selfless process of, of all, this, all the dynamics that I read about earlier you know, that are happening. And so he knew that there was nothing in the body that could be clung to as myself. And then the, worked with the moods and emotions, the internal weather, saw that there's nothing in that, the changing conditions of the emotional body uh, that could be clung to as I or mine. Then he noticed the thinking mind. And as is often described in scientific research that completely unbidden 65,000 thoughts a day come into our minds. 
uninvited, selflessly. And it said that 90% of those are repeats from the day before. And in the thinking mind, no me, no you, no self at all, just those thinking, those thoughts as their own thinkers. It's one of the places where we can understand uh, the absence of self through the thinking mind. But as the as the the Buddha noticed these changing conditions that couldn't be clung to and find any lasting satisfaction in the changing conditions and he experienced the selflessness of them, something in his consciousness it's that intelligence that's embedded, it's called satipanya, the wisdom that's embedded in, in attention, something, some intuition came and there was a clear, if there's nothing in this mind-body process, nothing in this world that is stable and continuous, nothing that can be clung to, then the only intelligent response to that is to let go of trying to hold on. And it's based on three common misperceptions that, that each of us in our individuality has experienced such endless rope burn, endless stress. Three misperceptions. Taking that which is impermanent to be permanent taking that which is unreliable and unsatisfactory, not a permanent source of satisfaction, to be satisfactory, taking it to be something that we can find lasting satisfaction in, and taking that which is selfless, that which is not myself, to be me, personalizing whatever it is that's occurring in the mind-body process. It's those three misperceptions that have kept us on this wheel of suffering, And in seeing clearly the changing, unreliable, empty or selfless nature of the changing phenomena, something in us lets go. And like I I started with the first portion of a passage from the Venerable Ajahn Chah this morning where he said, "If if you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you'll have complete peace and freedom. Your struggles with the world, the way it presents itself, will come to an end. So it is not so much due to the... It's due to these misperceptions through ignorance that we cling to things that cannot give us a sense of reliable identity. And then when we experience the insecurity of thing of of the um, of the sand slipping through our fingers with praise and blame, shame and fame, all those things, when we experience that insecurity, what do we ordinarily do from that point of misperception? We think something's wrong. And we think something's wrong with me. That I feel insecure. When really it is in the inherent nature of identity, 
identity with body, identity with mood, identity with time, identity with role, all these various identities. It's in the nature of having identity. And definition of birth, I said it this morning, leading cause of identity. If you have identity, you have insecurity. What do we do with that insecurity when we feel it? Think, I'm so insecure. And then we create a new identity as the one who's insecure. And then on top of that, the compounding stress, we then blame ourselves for it. As though we did something wrong. Not recognizing that this is in the nature of things. And what's really needed in the face of our inherent insecurity Since our bodies are insecure, moods are insecure, thoughts are insecure, our careers are insecure, our families are insecure. Isn't it true? In the face of that, what's needed is kindness, is mercy, is regarding ourselves with such tenderness in the face of this changing world. That's why the Buddha said what should be done by those who are skilled in goodness and who know the path of peace. Be able and upright, simple, but spreading loving kindness to oneself first of all. Because we are still individuals. It takes an individual to realize the selflessness of things. But to regard this mind-body, this incarnation with such tenderness that that each of us individually is made up is made up of so many non-personal elements that as my friend Wes Nisker says you are not your fault and a deeper understanding of of emptiness this is from DH Lawrence I love this little passage Oh, what a catastrophe, that maiming of love when it was made a personal, merely personal thing taken away from the rising and the setting of the sun and cut off from the magic connection of the solstice and equinox. This is what's the matter of us. We're bleeding at the roots because we are cut off from the earth and sun and stars and love is a grinning mockery because, poor Blossom, we plucked it from the stem stem on the tree of life and expected it to keep blooming in our civilized vase on the table. We, we tend to, to this the way I'm thinking about it, right? We, we tend to judge ourselves for, um, we tend to isolate ourselves, not remembering that we, we don't exist independently from everything that brought us into being. And it's another way of understanding the not-self. In the Mahayana school, there's a, considered the founder of Mahayana Buddhism, a teacher named Nagarjuna, who said, you are not the same, nor are you different from that which you depend. What do we depend on? Earth, air, fire, water, that's one part. What else do we depend on? Parents, friends, culture, food. What else do we depend on? Our what? Our senses. But the heart of this, of this interdependence 
is that uh, that this view of ourselves cut off from the flow of life is is uh, a form of delusion. And the more we fall into that sense of isolation and separation, the more harsh we become with ourselves. And what's needed is a widening of our circle of sensitivity and uh, remembering that none of this that we take to be ourselves is completely independent. When we, at the, when we um, do residential retreats here at Spirit Rock, those of you who've been on them know this, when we encourage people to be mindful of eating, we also encourage before you eat to reflect on the very food that makes this body That food is dependent on uh, earth, air, fire, water. Depends on the farmer. Depends on the trucker. Depends on the grocer. Depends on the, you know, so many non-personal elements. Now, where does that stop and you begin? So this sense of, of an independent existence is complete delusion. As Thich Nhat Hanh puts it, you are me and I am you isn't it obvious that we inter-are? You cultivate the flower in yourself so that I will be beautiful. I transform the garbage in myself so that you will not have to suffer. I support you. You support me. I am in this world to offer you peace. You are in this world to bring me joy. The more we understand our interbeing, the more that altruistic heart just naturally flows. That careful, the, mo- the, the feeling of generosity. You know, generosity is considered one of the three pillars of the Dharma. It's the teaching, the first teaching that the Buddha offered to lay people like us before there was ever any meditation or any exotic teachings on self. There were teachings on generosity. Because generosity is the, an accessible way that we can, we can experience the sense of, of interbeing. We can, in so many ways, when you give a gift, you feel the joy of offering that gift, the joy of thinking about it, the joy of remembering it, but you see the joy that comes to the, both the giver and the receiver. There's a, a circle. And you realize that this joining, this letting go of me and mine, and giving, giving forth to somebody isn't a reliable cause of joy. And then it expands to the generosity of acting, like Thich Nhat Hanh is talking about, acting wisely. What could be more generous than creating an inner and outer condition of harmlessness to create the conditions where other people will feel safe with you? It's another act of selflessness that we act, that we speak kindly, harmoniously for the benefit of somebody we're speaking for, not in order to harm them. Because we, when we harm somebody, we harm ourselves. We, when we, we shoot an arrow, it, it hits us. What can be more generous than being uh, self-aware 
of your motives when you speak, when you act. I know my, um, when, whenever I, my, my wife is very self-aware. I'm really lucky in this regard. She's incredibly self-aware. And if we have a, any kind of conflict, she'll come back and says, you know, I, was, I really saw how I got from point A to point B. And she takes responsibility for her experience. It is so generous for her to be self-awareness. Because what, what does that do to me? It means I don't, have to be, I don't have to be doing her work for her. I don't have to be fending off and trying to figure out where she's coming from and processing her unskillful actions. I can see she's doing it. What could be more generous than that? So we take care of ourselves so we don't, each of us doesn't have to suffer. This is the understanding of non-self, non-separate. It's not just being free of uh, independent self-existence, egoless. It's free of other. It's never in a vacuum. You know, because you could easily just say, oh, I'm so empty. I'm so selfless. Then it becomes just one giant ego trip. I'm so selfless. I'm more selfless than you. <laughs> See, identity view will take anything and turn it into a, into a way of separating out, into a way of creating some sense of grandiosity. good news about meditation is that all, we don't have to get rid of that. We just have to notice how the mind is doing that, how our mind creates a sense of separation. And whatever that separation is, that's being noticed, whatever identity view that you see, inflated, deflated, measuring, keeping score, we can notice, oh, there's identity view. Relate to it with kindness. That's just the function of the insecure attempt, the innocent insecurity that makes us attempt to find security in something you can't. While I'm on this theme, before we sit, very, very um, painful, a tormenting habit of mind where so much identity view gets, um, gets, where we get tangled up in identity view is as something that I spoke of earlier in the day that is part of every single human being's tendency. In fact, it's one of the, what the Buddha called one of the 10 fetters of the mind that keep us bound in cycles of stress. And it's called the comparing mind. And the beauty of the comparing mind is that it, if you're born, you have comparing mind. The beauty of it is it is possible to begin to relate to the comparing mind and how identity gets created around comparisons through measurements, how high, how low. And basically, the, the measurement is usually good, better, best. We all want to be special. That's, the, that's conceit. Now we've, 
It's easy to forget how special it is just to be a breathing, conscious being. As William Blake said, who you are shouts so loudly, I can't hear what you say. That each of us is such has such particularity, such a unique expression of life, such a miracle in and of itself. You are the one and only you in, as an individual. But yet, that immediate experience of that can be, we get used to that and we go, Whoa, I truly am, as Thich Nhat Hanh said, the richest person on earth. Quite a miracle, each of us. Just even the fact that we can see and hear and smell and taste. Wow. And of course, the more present, the more real-time experience of our particularity is, is experienced, the more that this version of you that's not historical, that's not measurable become so compelling and interesting that the desire to be somebody else and be somewhere else starts to diminish a little bit. So there is this non-historical experience of ourselves where you're not measurable, you're not comparable. You're just cool as you are for no other reason than it's self-evident in the experience of it. We could talk about the cosmology, that the miracle of you being born a human, but we won't, don't even need to do that. It's a direct experience. But a very conditioned, habitual part of our stream of consciousness, our mental formations, is this habit of comparing mind, conceit. Just reviewing, it comes in three flavors. Atimana, superiority view. It's that, it has a feeling, we talked earlier about, you know, during walking meditation, one of my colleagues, he noticed one retreat where he was walking doing walking meditation, just stepping, 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 stepping. But then he saw somebody, somebody walk nearby in his path. And all of a sudden he noticed, he kind of puffed up, moved into being somebody, superior somebody. And So at the time, he was using mental noting. He was lifting, moving, placing, just connecting with the simple experience. But then he added a note to the end of his note, his his noticing. He said, lifting, moving, placing, looking good. (laughs) Lifting, moving, placing, looking good. Superiority view, inflated sense of self, that shows up as though we need to to fluff our feathers so we're not enough as we are. But then there's the feeling less than, amana, 
then there's the equality view, that tendency to make sure that we're, that we're measuring up. Rumi, the poet Rumi, wrote this wonderful poem where in the poem, he, it's called uh, tending, to, it's tending to Shops. And he essentially says what I've been pointing to today. He says, live in the nowhere where you came from. Just that existence. Live in the nowhere where you came from, even though you have an address here. He says, you have eyes that see from that nowhere, and you have eyes that judge distances, how high, how low. You own two shops, and you just keep running back and forth. He says, try to close the one that's a fearful trap, always getting smaller. Checkmate this, checkmate that. I say, rather than try to close it, try to notice it. He says, keep open the one where you're not selling fish hooks anymore. You're the free swimming fish. But the process is to be able to make a shift from being acting out of that comparing mind and then feeling badly about ourselves to noticing it. Oh, there's the comparing mind, comparing. And then like the Like the, in the world of comedy, people make jokes about this comparing mind. I just thought I'd share this one with you. My favorite. The lengths to which we go to elevate ourselves. It's funny and painful, but here it is. In June, after the musical group, The Planets, introduced a 60-second piece of complete silence on its latest album. Representatives of the estate of the composer John Cage, who wrote 4 minutes and 33 seconds, that was the title, 273 seconds of silence, threatened to sue the group for ripping Cage off, but failed, said the group, to specify which 60 of the 273 seconds it thought had been pilfered. The the clincher here. Said Mike Bat of the planets, mine is a much better silent piece. I'm able to say in one minute what took Cage four minutes and 33 seconds. Anyway, there's no end to the comparing mind. And we don't have to get rid of it. We simply have to have a sense of humor and begin to notice that we are not, uh, the comparing mind is not myself. It's a, it's a mental formation. And it's something, part of the, the stream of thoughts, we have the planning, the remembering, the judging, the comparing, the analyzing, and the interpreting. None of them define us. A thought of your mother is not your mother, and in the same way, a thought of yourself is not yourself. It's a view. And the Buddha called that view, whether it's comparing or becoming or whatever view, he called it Sakaya Ditti. And as a view, it is not permanent. It changes. 
And what changes is not myself, not me, not mine. And finally, since we're running out of time, he said, nothing, nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, or mine. Whoever has heard that teaching has heard the whole teaching of the Buddha's awakening. Whoever has practiced that freedom from not clinging has practiced the entire teaching. Whoever has realized the fruit of liberation through non-clinging has realized the, the whole truth. Nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I or mine. So let's sit. So we've, discussed, we've experimented with the body as not myself, the body, the moods, not myself. And now in this sitting, this very short sitting, if thoughts and images arise, notice that a thought is not myself. It's just a thought. Until there's no experience that cannot be welcomed that cannot be understood to be changing, unreliable, and selfless. And as Gandan Rinpoche says, then we can let the entire game happen on its own, springing up and falling back like waves. And notice how everything arises and vanishes and reappears time and again, time without end. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it like a vivid rainbow. It's not really there. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you open this tight fist of grasping, infinite space is there open, inviting, comfortable. So make use of this spaciousness, this freedom and natural ease. Don't search any further. Don't go into the tangled jungle waiting for the, looking for the awakened elephant who's already resting quietly at home in front of your own fireplace. Nothing to do or unto, nothing to want and nothing missing. Everything unfolds selflessly by itself. How amazing. Be as you are. Don't stray away from yourself. Just this moment. Be aware.
last minutes, aware of being aware. Not somebody, but just a kind, interested and relaxed attention. We then direct to the body, carries us through this life, and we bring loving attention to the head and the neck and the shoulders. We let that loving awareness cascade down our arms and our legs, down to the tips of the fingers and the tips of the toes. Glide lovingly along the front torso and the back until there's no part of this fathom long body that is kept out of this field of loving attention. that this body and with its moods and its perceptions, its thoughts and images is subject to insecurity. We regard this body-mind with such tenderness and we drop into this field of tenderness, of loving attention, these deep wishes that all beings share. It's embedded in our nature, the desire to be happy. That we wish that for ourselves. May I be happy and peaceful. We bathe in that loving attention. May I be happy and peaceful. May I feel safe in this world, safe with myself. Changing processes, sickness, aging, dying, loss. I feel safe with others safe from harm, outer harm. May I have health and strength. And may I accept my limitations with grace. May my heart be at ease. And may I experience a sense of well-being. not live a life of postponement, but find that sense of well-being, peace, safety, and happiness now. Try my best never to stray away from it. My heart be touched with loving kindness. I accept myself as I am. I forgive myself for not being perfect. 
making mistakes, for being a learner. May I be bathed in acceptance, love. Letting this field of loving attention to expand to include everyone in this room has supported my practice today. And you might as well bring into your heart to your field of loving attention, all those who are near and dear to you. Also, bring in all those who are invisible to you, you, through the shroud of our own isolation and ignorance we ignore or don't notice. Bring into all the, into the field all the beings in this world who draw breath, all the animal beings and the human beings, those happy and unhappy, until there's no being that's left out of our circle of caring. As I want to be happy, may all beings be happy, peaceful, safe, protected, healthy, strong. May all beings have ease, May all beings grow in equanimity and serenity, able to meet the joys and the sorrows, the changing conditions with balance, non-contentiousness. May my practice today and any fruits or benefits of my practice be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all beings including myself. All beings be free. May all beings know peace and love. true pleasure being with you. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to wander around the world of self-view, self-body, mind, all that, and the opportunity to, to share. So thanks for your practice. And if any of you would like to ever practice with me, of course I'll be here next month, but every Tuesday in the Mission in San Francisco, 730 35 years every Tuesday, so it's very reliable. Even even though I will not be there this particular Tuesday, but the president of our board of Mission Dharma will be leading the group that night, and she also leads the Richmond, California Sangha and uh, Real Bodhisattva, and uh, very funny, very smart. Uh, I think you'll enjoy. And she's actually going to talk, we'll talk this week about community. Uh, But any Tuesday, I'm usually there and then lead a lot of residential retreats. I know I have two in January, but they have waiting lists now, but maybe those waiting lists sometimes change. So if you are inclined to have a residential retreat in January, love to see you. 
And most important, um, practice every day. Nobody does this alone independently, so practice with groups. Remember the three jewels, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. Uh, Sangha community is equal to the Buddha and the Dharma. So hope to see you on the Dharma trail in the Sangha. And uh, thanks again for your practice. And please um, know that you may be a little sensitive after a day of practice. Try to forget everything you heard today. (laughs) Really. And just be aware. Don't be somebody being aware. Just be aware. Anyway, have fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.